How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the Easy Peasy Podcast, where we discuss living better through permaculture, mindfulness, decentralization, freedom, flow, agorism, anarchy, and more. We'll discuss how to solve life's complex problems with simple solutions. This is Mike the Polymath coming from the Easy Peasy Workshop in Indianapolis, Indiana, the crossroads of America. Thanks for joining me. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to episode 155 of the Easy Peasy Podcast. Doing a solo show, but to be honest, you're not going to hear a whole lot of my voice. Um, This is a bit of a clip show. And I decided to take what's become something of a segment on the WTF forum called Based or Bogus and make an entire episode because there's some characters floating about. Some of them are household names, others are not. But there seems to be some overlap and some connections and some deception, perhaps. And I'm doing this now because, you know, there's been a lot of buzz about this movie called Sound of Freedom, supposedly based on a true story um, about a, a guy who's still around, still still talking. Um, and recently, Mr. Mel Gibson gave it an endorsement. Apparently, he was allowed to view it well in advance um, and even, I believe, had a hand in doing the final edit, if I'm not mistaken. So he is directly involved in this movie. um, And I've threatened to do a based or bogus on the WTF forum for Mel Gibson. You know, he seems like a character that's just prime for based or bogus, right? He has strong opinions. He also has a whole lot of controversy controversy around him Um, and it can be a bit difficult to decide is he based or is he bogus but in doing this in the preparations and, and as I was clipping all these out I found that it might also be worth seeing if this guy who the sound of freedom is based on I believe his name is Tim Ballard whether or not he's based or bogus. And then lastly, I decided to throw in a clip of Ashton Kutcher when he testified in front of Congress talking about his THORN program, I believe it's called, um, which is also, you know, 
geared around ending child sex traffic, sex trafficking, sex slavery, right? Which is a hot button issue right now and most certainly should be, right? But I, I bring all these guys up, these three guys, um, because I think there's a chance that they, they might be a little bit full of shit in different ways, perhaps. You know, for instance, like Ashton Kutcher always threw around the figure of 100,000 to 300,000 American children are trafficked every year. Now that, when I first heard it, I said, wow, that's a lot. I mean, geez, talking somewhere around a quarter million quarter million children trafficked every year you know that kind of rang my bullshit bell the first time I heard it I would not be at all surprised if the number was in the tens of thousands but a hundred thousand or more up to three hundred thousand that just seems grossly overestimated then again, you know, I'm I'm not an expert in this stuff. So I did a little digging. I found these clips. I spliced them together for you. And I'll let you just make up your own mind. Um, you know, we cover Mel Gibson for the majority of the episode because, frankly, he's the most interesting and, I don't know, controversial character of the bunch. Um for valid reasons. You know, he might have a screw loose or two, but that doesn't mean he's not based. You know, we're all kind of crazy in our own ways, right? There is no such thing as a perfect person. You know, he who is without sin may cast the first stone, right? So don't take my word for it. Don't take anyone's word for it. Make up your own mind. Um, and I will say, there's a fairly intense uh, conversation between Mel Gibson and his baby mama. And I broke it up, I broke it into pieces because it's too brutal to listen to all at once. Um, but it's it's important to hear again, you know, as an observer, I do not know the goings on of any relationship that I'm not a part of you know was his baby mama using him was he abusing her perhaps both perhaps both and that's all I'll say about it you know I'm not gonna defend spousal abuse um, by any means you know that's that's the darkest part of this episode. So I'm just giving you a little warning there so it doesn't shock you. But that's probably enough of an intro. I'm going to let the clips roll, and then maybe I will share some final thoughts at the end. When I came over here, I was, oh God, I was in my, my uh, mid-20s. Right. The first time I really came over here. You know, I had a whole bunch of 
weird paranoid suspicions about what the hell was going on because there was a lot of stuff I couldn't understand. Right. Um, and nobody was really bothering to explain it to me. They don't. <clears throat> and it, it, and I formed a bunch of opinions about the town and about the people in it that were like, surely that couldn't be because that couldn't be the reason for why so-and-so was acting like, could it? Mm. And then you find out later on the track that you are exactly on track. Mm. Welcome back family, ABS here and today I have an absolutely explosive episode because there have been clips of Mel Gibson floating around from a very old interview where he claims to have encountered the Antichrist and he also goes into some details about Hollywood and what the industry is actually like. Now I have actually managed to find the entire interview and I'm going to play that for you shortly but before we get to it I want you to remember who this man is. He is an actor, a director, and a producer of one of the biggest Christian movies ever, The Passion of Christ. Now, in the exclusive interview that I'm about to show you, Mel Gibson exposes some shocking truths about the entertainment industry that only somebody who has been there themselves can speak about and actually be taken seriously about it. And he speaks about the ugly reality behind Hollywood, behind all of the glamour, if you want to call it that. But that's not all. In this jaw-dropping interview, he speaks about the Antichrist and he also speaks about a very dark situation that he experiences with one specific actor. And I won't ruin it for you. I'll let you watch the interview for yourself. But pay attention to the wording that he uses throughout the interview. It's very, very interesting. And this can be very eye-opening for anybody who's trying to get into that industry. Maybe this will wake you up and turn you off of getting into that world, to be honest. But without any further ado, sit back, relax and enjoy the interview. What were your options at a, you know, when you were 18 in terms of what you might do with your life? Well, I had absolutely no idea. And, and uh, my options were, um, you know, get some quick, fast job, probably physical labor mm -hmm. to, um, you know, to earn the bread. And, Where and were you? In Australia. Okay. I had uh, an opportunity of going to university. I'd finished high school, did average, mm -hmm. but passed really hated school um, um, and I could have gone into journalism or um, the other option that was open to me was a sort of auditioning for, for a drama school right which which I did I could tell jokes mm. and, and stories and uh, and make stories up and convince people of things that weren't true you were a liar kind of yeah, yeah. A, a great liar yeah yeah a good liar yeah. I'm not as good a liar now as I was then yeah because it's <clears throat> you know the lying thing is uh, something you have to try and overcome, I guess. Mm, sure. And I try and put it into a a framework where I can call it a profession now, mm. which is uh, it's called acting. Yeah. Yeah. I, I I can't say that I have a method. No. I, I don't I don't think I do. I mean, there is method, but I find that it constantly shifts and changes, and I think that that's a good thing. I'm not sure. I mm. I um. I was uh, educated in, in the way of uh, uh, theater craft and stuff was a very British way of right. doing things, which meant technique. Uh, technique. Yeah. They're all in favor of actually feeling a real emotion and, and doing that. Yeah. Uh, but they just say, you're not going to be able to summon that every 
time. And if you, even if you could summon that every time you would, you would die young. Yeah. Um, so that, uh, you have to be able to at least fake it. Well, mm. how do you deal with actors on that one? Um, well, you, you choose the ones who you want to be with, mm -hmm. uh, for a start. I never make them read or anything. I, no. I just, I, I doubt that you do either. No, I don't like it. I, I don't understand that. I get embarrassed. That. I get embarrassed. And when they cry in a reading, I get like, oh, oh it's, Yeah. Oh, you, know. you want to go in. You want to leave because you feel you shouldn't be there. Well, it seems like you're doing something terribly wrong. You feel like some mm -hmm. kind of a, you know, I mean, you feel as if you're, you're committing a crime. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of slimy. It's, it's kind of prostitution. Sure. And, and it, and, and, but that I think is even beyond. It's, it's just kind of, watching someone uh go through the act of prostituting themselves mm. is kind of, it, it it's there's something very un, almost unbearable about it i find it well all the actresses i've spoken to uh, all, all without prompting come up with the same thing of how detestable is the casting process mm. not the old casting couch thing just the thing of not having someone good to read with mm -hmm. you know and and being expected to come in and emote and look sexy and the whole thing in front of a bunch of strangers it's not fair it's perverse well it's not fair on them either no it's 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 asking them to do something and you don't find out anything you from it nothing. you find out nothing from it this is mm -hmm. the main reason why i really hate it uh you can get them in there and somebody might do just a slap up job for that day but that's what they've aimed at that mm -hmm. day they you're not you have to be able to figure out whether they're going to be any good for three months while you're working with them. Mm. And, and the best way to do that is to get them in the room, sit them down. Um, and it may be uncomfortable as it always is getting to know someone to begin with. And they think they're going to have to read. So you tell them, well, to begin with, I don't want you to read anything. And they, and they sort of relax a little mm -hmm. and you say, and I don't, I, I'm not making anybody read. So they don't feel like they're being outcast. Well, no, that's the big thing. Yeah. And, uh, and I don't think it tells you anything except the fact that, well, hey, they can read. I was fortunate. I only had to do it one time, ever. As an actor? As an actor, when I was starting out on a career. I only had to do it once because I was really bad at it. Mm. I couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. What happened was, it was I went into this place and it was... Uh, the guy said, read this. Uh, can you memorize this in like um, 10 minutes and come back and do it? Mm -hmm. And he gave me this... Uh, script with uh i mean it was like two full pages of like complete like a soliloquy like mm. a dialogue not well written either no. i said just give me a little hint about who this guy is and why he's saying this stuff so they gave me a, like a thumbnail mm -hmm. and i thought okay so i went into the next room and I, you know i tried to comprehend it as best i could and then um i just came back they turned a video camera on me and i just sat there and tried to do it i couldn't mm. i didn't do it according to the the page or anything but i just started off and improvised the whole thing around it mm -hmm. which is all you could do in 10 minutes i mean and got the job got it yeah uh -huh. i was so far away from the, the technical aspects of reading and doing things within a some parameter that is given in audition processes that i thought it was hopeless anyway so i got threw it away and was relaxed yeah. and that's the best way to find out whether or not this actor actress will suit your requirement is to have them relax mm. and then you can talk about leather yeah. and you'll know mm. within 15 minutes if this is a person you want to work with 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Christopher Walken, the first time I ever did a casting session in America. Yeah. Terrified me. Me too. I mean, I, fucking hell. I came I, to meet the guy. They said, oh, he's flying, he's flying in from God knows where. Yeah, but he miles. didn't need a plane, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> he didn't need a plane. He came in, he was doing all the kind of Scorsese oh. stuff. And I said, have you had a chance to read the script? He looked at me and he said, do you like my face? And I went, yes. He said, but that's great. Because if you don't, get uh, De Niro. I'm out of here. And stood up and walked out. And everyone said, well, that I think was quite a good meeting. No, he came to see me on a rooftop in New York. I said, hey, can I, can I talk to you? And he said, sure. And he, he floated in mm. sideways mm. through a crowd of people. He was wearing black. And it was like one of those old vampire movies where they don't walk, but they glide. Mm. And he was a dancer, you know, so he has yeah, very, yeah. he's very, um, um, you know, graceful. Yeah. And he moved sideways and he just sat down in a chair next to me. And it kind of frightened me. Mm. Um, and he's a very smart guy. Mm. And we started talking and I didn't, you know, say much of anything about reading the script. Nothing. I just started talking about the Middle Ages. And, mm. and he... Um, and he began to talk tortures. And we swapped tortures because I'd read this book on torture. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I tried to recall some of the most heinous things I'd ever read in this book. And, and he was like, oh, oh, and he'd try and top it. <laughs> and, it, it got, and my assistant was there and he left because he, he couldn't stand it anymore. Yeah. The, the air had turned cold. Mm-hmm. And then he left and I, I wanted to leave. <laughs> and because I knew that I didn't want to work with him. Yeah. And he was getting scary. Yeah. And then I turned around and it was on top of the Peninsula Hotel. I turned around to avoid his steady gaze at one point. Yeah. And I was looking at a building with the top of the sixes on it. So there was a huge illuminated triple six, six in red. Yeah. And I went from that to that to that. And he, he started smiling. Yeah. And I thought, oh, no. Chris Walken is the Antichrist, yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah. You do, there are certain trends that seem to kind of float together, which is and one of the questions that keeps coming up is why are there no decent parts for women? Mm-hmm. Uh, why are actresses, why are women just completely underused in storytelling yeah. within this system known as Hollywood? Yeah. Any thoughts on that? Well, I think the storytelling has always been a kind of a, a, a male medium. Mm-hmm. Um, always in history always yeah from the start uh-huh. they were the guys who did I mean women just think differently to us and that's a good thing and there are things about the way they think and about the way they look at things that we cannot possibly understand in fact it's far be- above us beyond us to to try and like get a hook on it because I've tried and I'm you know I'm a little wiser because I can kind of allow for it more now because I understand that it exists but totally understanding it, I will never. Mm-hmm. And and I think the the, the male of the species um, is more adept at at, um, at the telling of a story. That's why you go to any bar; it's not women telling jokes; mm-hmm. it's guys telling jokes. Right. Women are notoriously bad joke tellers. Most of them. Some of them are good. Mm-hmm. Some of them have a capacity for it. But I think uh, just generally, I think. Um, men are better at it at telling stories and when they tell a story they have to it has to issue from themselves and their own experience Mm -hmm. and uh, it's very hard if most of the 
storytellers around are men to actually have a good story about a woman. Right. I think it's, it's done. It's done pretty well at times. Uh, Even if we go back to say the forties, fifties, yeah. <clears throat> early sixties, just of cinema, forget literature. Um, although the balance would have been still in the favor of, of men in yeah. terms of just number of roles and so on. Uh-huh. There were far more, I mean, there were some very powerful actresses uh-huh. who were taken incredibly in terms of box office, were right. taken as seriously as, as men. And like um, Joan Crawford. Exactly. By any number of them, actually, yeah. you know. But she used to she used to display a male point of view. It was mm. very interesting. She was very masculine on screen. Right. And is it that women are trying they're saying the parts aren't good because they're not masculine? I'm I'm never quite sure about that. If you look at at the you know the scripts that are floating around right now mm-hmm. and the movies that are being made <clears throat> they're woefully short on on interesting female parts yes they women are. tend to kind of pop up and sort of endorse men uh take their clothes off mm-hmm. if they're in a good enough shape and yeah. leave yeah um and uh, one of the actresses i spoke to actually i came up with what i thought which was a pretty smart thing which was saying i said at what point do you do you see the decline in women's roles said the moment women took their clothes off yeah and it became a given yeah. Then uh, seemed to be a lack of respect and a dropping off of interest in other other points of interest about women. You know? There's a producer I know, successful producer. I I will not mention names, but mm. his whole um, um, opinion about women on film, from beginning to end, is very brief. He says women on film, either naked or dead. Both is better. Mm. And it's like whoa, mm-hmm. whoa. The man is, has got a spiritual malady for a start. Mm-hmm. I mean, the scary thing is that I think a lot of people think that. Mm-hmm. Maybe not to that extreme. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> there are people, well-meaning people, that, and you find that the woman and the woman's role in a film becomes some sort of just appendage to the man. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, can, I can see why they're not too fulfilled in, in, in doing that. You're here, basically, right? You live here. Most of the, of the time, yeah, now. yeah, really. Um, I guess, yeah, yeah. I integrated. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's pretty much based on money. The system here. It is. Yeah. The system is completely based on money. Yeah. Uh, the studio system. Yeah. Uh, to a degree, I think the way I hook into the system is based on money. Yeah. Um. I mean, you've managed. You're a rare bird. You've we still think of you as, as an actor. But in fact, that's just quite a small part of what you do now, isn't it? Uh, yeah. It's the part... I, I, I mean, I was... When I found... When somebody told me just how many movies you'd produced, I was, I was stunned. I mean, you, you turn over, don't you? Quite a few. I mean, uh, we're pretty prolific for a perceived vanity company. Right. Which uh, I think a lot of people start film companies and then they sure. they don't really do anything with them but this is <clears throat> gets into the act sometimes not always successfully either yeah. i mean we've made some t- some horrible little pictures but we've made some good ones too yeah and um so that that's there's a pride in that and i enjoy doing that yeah and how I'm active are you pretty active you've got a good team haven't you yeah i think yeah. The, the, there's a lot of people here with a, with good heads on their shoulders yeah. um and nobody's immune from making a mistake, that's for sure. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we make plenty of them. We call them school fees. Do you? 
school fees every time we get ripped off or yeah um or make a big mistake or you know where it's and it costs you yeah and you think oh it cost you two million or four million so when you get a project that you're gonna that your company's gonna do Mm -hmm. do do they vary are some ones that you just think are just should be made as a film or is it pretty much financially based your judgment no it's not solely financially based Mm. um I think that there's an art in marrying the two. Sure, yeah. And and uh, if you can find that balance and satisfy both requirements, then you are successful within the industry. Right. It doesn't mean you're not successful yeah. if you don't meet one of those requirements. You're just successful within this industry. Um, so what would you say was the good news about Hollywood right now? being very actively in the middle of it. I think... What's right about it? The best thing about it is that, um, you know, I I grew up, and I guess you grew up in an industry that happened somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And I succumbed to the charm of film and filmmaking, and and I love it, Mm -hmm. and I love telling a story, and I love everything about it. Mm -hmm. Even the crappy things about it I kind of like. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it kind of, I guess it gets almost to a question of like kind of a religion mm-hmm. Mecca for filmmakers is this industry here. Mm. It's where there's the biggest pool. It's wherever it's the watering hole where everyone comes to see, to measure up, mm. to include themselves in the pool, mm. their talent and that collective, uh, thing it, it's like you go to the smorgasbord to feed your um, your need to work and your need to tell stories and your need to express yourself, whatever form is, it takes. Is there a collective uh, ethos? or um, Somebody once said my problem was I didn't understand the social contract. Yeah, I now understand what that means. Yeah. Do you understand it? The social contract? Yeah. I, th- I think I do. Yeah. What uh, is it for you? Uh, the social contract. You can't get mad. Mm-hmm. You can't get mad. You can't let it get you. Because you have to have, you have to make a deal with everyone else, and it's almost unspoken, that you are going to be fucked over at some point by people who you may have done something nice for. Mm. And it may happen that by circumstance, or even very purposefully, that you fuck someone over. But that shouldn't get in the way of you being able to sit down and have fun with them. <laughs> you, am I on the right track? Absolutely. You, you can't build a resentment about it. Mm-hmm. You have to still try and love those people. Yeah. Because that's the way they're thinking. Because it ain't personal. No, it's not personal. They don't really mean to hurt you. No. Not really. I don't quite understand well i mean there's a lot of motivations for why it sure. happens yes many i mean money will make you do stuff as well won't it i mean yes. one them us, yes you know yeah well yeah. whoever if there's many millions riding on a decision it's hard to be philosophical yes yeah, yeah very very hard very hard to be you know you, <laughs> you have to choose what level of integrity you're coming in at and okay uh, and I've often felt it. I've sat there and I have felt the knife slipped firmly in between my shoulder blades and tried to have it shoved through 
the other side through my heart. And I've actually felt the whole thing and I've gone, ah! Wait till next week, you know? Or I'll think, and for, and you'll resent it for a little while mm. and you have to let it go. Otherwise, you'll, you'll eat yourself alive here. Mm. And I think it takes that kind of cockroach resilience to survive in this town. I mean, this is a bizarre place. Um, and it doesn't take very long. If, if, and I'm sure you've experienced this if you've stayed here for any length of time. You come in, you're fresh from the outside. You're off the boat from the farm, still got on your shoes. You're in here. People are charmed by that, mm. that you've still got on your shoes. Uh, they're charmed by the fresh approach you bring to it. And that's a real thing. Mm -hmm. But they're also stroking the shit out of you, you know, mm -hmm. licking you all over. And, and that's kind of good for you, too. It's great. But it doesn't take very long before you realize, or before it gets to you, it's cascading on you all the time. You can't get away from certain attitudes, from certain modes of behavior that this town and the industry dictate. And no matter how strong you are, when you come in off the farm mm. with those convictions and those and a certain line of attack, no matter how strong you are, you are going to be affected by this place. Mm. No, I've, it's I've... going to divert you from where you were going. Sure. You're going to be diverted. Mm. When I came over here, I was, oh God, I was in my, my uh, mid-20s. Right. The first time I really came over here. You know, I had a whole bunch of, weird paranoid suspicions about what the hell was going on because there was a lot of stuff I couldn't understand. Right. Um, and nobody was really bothering to explain it to me. They don't. <clears throat> and, it, it, and I formed a bunch of opinions about the town and about the people in it that were like, surely that couldn't be because... A whole place can't be like, you know, weird town, you know, where the stranger wanders in and, and all the people are in the bar and they all shut up when he looks at him and, mm -hmm. and they tell you don't go out of the house on the hill. and It's like that. Mm -hmm. And then you go away and you think, no, that's, I was wrong. I mean, that's insane thinking. I'm paranoid. I imagined that stuff. That couldn't be the reason for why so-and-so was acting like could it? Mm. And then you find out later on the track that you are exactly on track mm. with a lot of this stuff. Not specifically on no, track, no. but that you could, uh, that some of your worst nightmares were real at the time. And you think, oh. mm. now this is what I mean by actually starting to swim up or downstream with the rest of the salmon, mm. you know, eventually, if you stay here long enough, yeah, you'll find yourself doing that. Um, and you have to There's a way of doing it without doing it. Mm. That takes time. Mm. Uh, and it takes relaxation. Mm. Not being uncomfortable about... Not being uncomfortable. Realizing it for what it is. Projecting. Understanding what it is. Once you understand it, well, then you're not afraid of it anymore. Mm -hmm. So you can just walk around it, through it, and, mm -hmm. and then get on with what you tried to get on with in the first place. A place like this can humiliate you, mm -hmm. and it can be. It can either it can humiliate you. It can be humbling. I mean, it, it does rip your life to pieces. Does it? If you'll let it. Yeah. 
and it's always pounding at the walls. It's yeah. These little guys, these little heathens with no soul downstairs with horns on their head with a battering ram trying to like beat your walls in. Yeah. But that's your own devils, you know? Yeah. I mean, as a matter of interest, do you think it's easier because you're an outsider who came in? I think so. Yeah. Because it was glaring to me because I was an outsider who came in. But who isn't an outsider yeah. coming into this? Our tape's coming to an end, so oh. I just want to ask you a couple of um, stupid questions. <clears throat> just really quick off the top of your head. Give me five movies that you like. Not the best in the world, just... Five movies I like. I hate this question. I can never answer it. Okay. I'll never be able to do it in the time allotted. Okay. Thanks, Mel. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> There you go, family. Let me know in the comments section what you believe about Hollywood. Do you believe that it really is the way that he explained it? Or maybe even worse. Let me know in the comment section below. And that's what I wanted to show you today. If you enjoy my content, make sure you do smash that thumbs up button, subscribe and turn on the notification bell. That way you get notified every time I upload a new video. Big shout out to the channel members, the financial supporters of my content. Thank you so much. It really does go a long way. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right, so we have a special message here from our guy, Mel Gibson, who we know is working on some big stuff, but he is letting Hollywood know. He's letting the people know. He dropped a message. I want you guys to listen to it, and we're going to talk about it. Are you a Mel Gibson fan? Do you love Mel Gibson? Do you love his movies? Which one is your favorite movie? Comment down below. Let me know. I'm excited for this. Let's take a look at his message. One of the most disturbing problems in our world today is human trafficking, and particularly the trafficking of children. Our future is our children. Now, the first step in eradicating this crime is awareness. Go see Sound of Freedom. There you go. Sounds of Freedom, July 4th. And no, I'm not getting paid to promote this movie. No, I'm not. But he put himself out there. He's letting the people know. He just dropped this message. Letting people know to go watch Sounds of Freedom because they are now headed in a direction, right? We're talking about Jim Cavazu, right? We're talking about Tim Ballard. Ballard. I think that's his name. Please let me know. Ballard. They are heading in the direction where they are taking on Hollywood one by one. It's really just it's really just them against Hollywood. And we're talking about Hollywood elites, right? We're talking about 33 to 40 billion dollar corporation, which is child trafficking. Let's bring awareness to this. Ladies and gentlemen, this movie is very important. Now, I do want to go and show you guys what Jim Cavezu said about Mel Gibson. Let's roll the clip. We showed this um, movie to um, two Academy Award Best Director, Best Film Directors. And um, both of them are really kind of brutal, you know, when you go to them, because they're going to tell you the truth, what they think of the movie and everything. Um, both of them were absolutely stunned. Um, one of them is my good friend Mel Gibson. The other one likes to remain anonymous. Um, Mel was weeping. And uh, and um, in a fair world, this would hands down win Best Picture. So now that you guys heard that, I do want to play a little bit more of Jim Cavezu 
slamming the woke media for trying to stop this movie. Now, The Passion of the Christ. Have you guys ever seen The Passion of the Christ? Now, I remember watching that very long time ago. The movie came out in 04, right? And I didn't know that they were trying to blackball that movie. They were trying to blackball Mel Gibson at that time. I didn't know that. I'm going to be honest. I did not know. So here is, I think, one of the actors of the movie and Jim Cavazu, um, speaking about the woke media trying to stop. Why? Let me ask you a question. In, in, in your right mind, ladies and gentlemen, why will they, why are they trying to stop this movie? Why are, you, why are they trying to blackball this movie? Why aren't they picking, why isn't this the most important movie of all time? Now, if you guys don't know Sounds of Freedom, I suggest you watch one of the trailers. I don't want to get copyrighted for the trailer, but Ladies and gentlemen, this movie is very important because it literally is about child trafficking all around the world and this agent who actually does the job to get it done. Ladies and gentlemen, I just want you to hear what Jim Cavazu has to say about Sounds of Freedom. Let's roll the clip. There are, with the power of this film, why they're scared of this film is because, um, look at the Passion of the Christ. We, this is amazing. It was pushed by the people. And at one point, Two different individuals went and watched the movie. They, both of these guys got away with murder, and they turned themselves in after that movie. Yeah. Now, this movie has a power because it goes into your heart, and it asks you a question. You know, when when this is all done, what do you get? And what are you gonna What are you gonna do? What you're gonna have to meet God at some point. And I believe it's going to move a lot of whistleblowers. Mm -hmm. come forward but not one in the hundreds maybe thousands of them worldwide start coming forward and telling the truth of what's really going on and that will bring an end to this whole thing yeah and and this is very important because we are against goliath this day is coming the same day uh the week of july 4th independence day freedom right yeah we should celebrate freedom in one hand with the other hand there's a lot of kids a lot of children that won't be able to celebrate freedom. We have to do something to bring freedom back to them. So we have this feeling that today we had a, we received a great news. Now we're in 2,400 theaters. Our goal is more than 3,000 theaters. We started in 1,000. So there is something, some momentum going on right now. And uh, so we're like the little, the little David, the other dog against Goliath. Only with the help of the people. Yes. If you will become one David, we know the end of the story. We know what happened to Goliath. It's up to you. It's up to the audience. Up to the people. Right now, they are they're answering. Amazing! It's I mean, the ticket sales are growing and growing and growing, and we're out selling by twenty five percent. I mean, we're not we're nothing, but the people are with us, and we're out selling Indiana Jones right now by twenty five percent. It's extraordinary, you know. And and we're now at, starting to add screens, but it's really important that. People go buy the tickets now because if they do, like the passion, mm -hmm. they started adding several thousand ice glitters, right? And, we, and, we, and so the point is, is July 4th, 4th of July, can we give those children back their freedom on our Independence Day? We have a darkness around us right now. Woo! I'm getting the chills. Damn. Wow. Wow. July 4th. Independence Day. Can we give those children their independence, man? I'm telling you, bro. Anyone, anyone opposing this, 
I, I just don't know how you get to live with yourself if you're opposing this. July 4th, 4th of July, can we give those children back their freedom on our Independence Day? We have a darkness around us right now. We could lose our republic. Are we going to let our children go? And that's a question. And people have to answer. And I think they're, they're, they're onto this. And um, the way things are going to be done now, I, uh, it's going to be changed from this point on. There's going to be a new direction in this co country. Yeah. People aren't buying the media like they used to. Because they, they, you know, the, the stuff that happened on Butter, um, Hunter Biden laptop. Mm -hmm. Okay, two years, you told it's not true. Okay, I believe you. You're the media, you know. But then it's true. And then uh, for seven years, we learned that uh, uh, Donald Trump is a Russian spy. Well, that's wrong. Thank you, media, for telling us that. But then now Durham report drops. He's not a Russian spy. Okay, that, that's 80% in the last seven years that you told us is all false. So the public is going, no, you don't have the power you used to. And it's the same thing with me as an actor. You know, a lot of movie stars, Joseph Goebbels back in the day, you know, people put their hand up to the swastika in order to work. I got to work. I love the sound of music. You know why? Because the Von Trapp father had those children. And he's looking at his friends and they're all willing to take a break today at McDonald's at the, on the third right camp. And just, what was the matter if it's going to happen? As long as it happened to you. And he goes off on that. His friend, Max, sometimes I don't even know you. And he's looking at his kids and he realizes... What is all of this power worth anyway if I go and work for Satan? And he packs up and takes his family and leads. And the extraordinary thing of faith, we need more people like this. And we, we met a lot of them today. Oh, oh yeah. they're awesome. I know what is happening in the border right now. Where is Joe Biden? Why? How come these guys are not in the border? How come the government of Mexico, how come Lopez Obrador is not in the border trying to save the children? They don't care or they're involved. Both are wrong. Yeah. Well, I don't want to. Woo! This is a must-see movie, must-see video, by the way. Please go watch this video. I'm going to promote this video. Like I said, I'm not getting paid for this, but the Daily Signal posted this video. I'm doing a reaction to it. Uh, very important interview, man. It breaks down the media, how woke they are, how they're just ignoring this, how this is all super. How did saving children become super far right? I mean, that makes absolutely like it should be the most centered thing ever should be that ladies and gentlemen man uh, these guys are doing important work i don't care if this video gets demonetized if it gets yellow more i really I'm, I'm starting to really not care no more so you guys know what to do go join the locals that's why locals is very important go join it hit the like button fight the algorithm ladies and gentlemen because this is a fight between good and excuse me between good and evil what side are you choosing, man? What side are you choosing? July 4th, Jim Cabezu, Tim Ballard, Mel Gibson. Sounds of freedom. I'll see you guys there. Tell me that the message or something, right? Because you're doing something trying to breastfeed with uh, fucking foreign bodies in you. So Was that it? It has nothing to do with it. Correct. Correct. Okay, good. So you're not lying to me about fake tits. I've never had. Yes. Yes, you just did. You said they weren't. You fucking lied to me before. What? I didn't.
I never said a, I never said anything of a kind. You never asked me. I never told you. Or maybe you asked me, but I never lied about this. I don't lie. Who cares? So they look ridiculous. Get rid of them, why don't you? Anyway, uh, you know. That's not none of your fucking business. What it is. Like. It is. They look stupid. I'm just telling you. It's just an appraisal. Keep them if you want. Look stupid. See if I give a fuck. You know, but they're too big and they look stupid. They look like some Vegas bitch. They look like a Vegas whore. Mm -hmm. And you go around sashaying around in your tight clothes and stuff. I won't stand for that anymore. I don't. I don't walk around. I don't, I don't walk. To be that. I don't walk around in tight clothes. I stay at home for most of the time. You go out public and it's a fucking embarrassment to me. You look like a fucking bitch on heat. And if you get raped by a pack of niggers, it'll be your fault. All right. Mel Gibson is a brilliant Hollywood actor, screenwriter, director, and producer. The blue-eyed genius heartbreaker won two Oscars and the Golden Globe Award as Best Director. He is the father of many children, a philanthropist, and a millionaire. But at the same time, Mr. Gibson is known for his wild debauchery and many scandals. He was also a favorite actor of the late North Korean leader Kim Jong-il. Alright? Because you provoked it, you are provocatively dressed all the time with your fake boobs you feel you have to show off in tight outfits and tight pants so that you see your pussy from behind. And that green thing today was enough. That's provocative. Okay? I'm telling you. I'm just telling you the truth. I don't like it. I don't want that woman. I don't want you. I don't believe you anymore. I don't trust you. I don't love you. I don't want you. Okay? Okay. Stay in the fucking house. I'm not giving it to you, but I'll let you stay there. Okay? And I will take care of my child, but I don't want you anymore. How Mel Gibson lives and what happened to him. Malcolm Kilgerard Gibson was born on January 3rd, 1956 in suburban New York. He was the sixth child in his Irish Catholic family. The boy was named after St. Mel and St. Columkil, who is venerated as one of the Twelve Disciples in Ireland. His parents, Patricia and Hatton Gibson, were ordinary, deeply religious people. They saw the meaning of life in their children, thus the family turned out to be quite large. They had 11 children in total. It seems that the great future of Mel was genetically determined because his paternal grandmother was an Australian opera star and his grandfather was a millionaire. He owned a successful tobacco business in the American South. The second ingredient in the formula of success was his parents' boundless love and care. They did everything they could to support the children. However, the family couldn't be called well off. The father was a conductor on the New York Central Railroad, where he sustained occupational injury. Having a high IQ and iron will, Hutton sued his former employer and got a substantial compensation of $145,000. Moreover, his sharp mind allowed him to win $21,000 in an international game show, and this money was very useful when the USA was about to enter a large-scale war conflict in Vietnam. The head of the family didn't want to risk the lives of their children, who would be eligible to be drafted for service to fight in a war, and he decided to move his family to Australia. Mel successfully graduated high school and got a parallel 
unparalleled religious education, dreaming to become a journalist. But his sister helped him a lot to choose his future vocation. She knew that her brother was very artistic and liked to prank people, so she applied to Sydney National Institute of Dramatic Art on his behalf. Gibson himself was not very eager to go there. The day before the audition, he got very drunk and had a fight, and because of that, he didn't look very well. Fortunately, the commission liked this rough look, and he started his studies, living with his friends in Sydney. Among these friends was future Oscar winner Jeffrey Rush. Yes. Stay on this phone and don't hang up for me. I can. I have plenty of energy to drive over there. You understand me? And I will. So just fucking listen to me. Listen to my fucking ranting. Listen to what you do to me. I didn't do anything to you. You are ruining my life. You make my life so fucking difficult. Well, you know what? It's you be a woman that fucking supports me instead of a woman that sucks off me and just fucking sucks me dry and wants and wants get out to this relationship if you're a good woman and you love me. What? I don't believe you anymore. What am I? What did you just say? Get your bullshit. Has any relationship ever worked with you? No. Listen to me. You don't love me because somebody who loves does not behave this way. No, I do not. I know, one second. I'm behaving like this because I know absolutely you do not love me and you treat one me with second, no consideration. One second, please. Can I, I please? I love you because I treated you with every kindness, no. every consideration. You no. rejected. I'm you sorry. will never be happy. Fuck you. Um, Get the fuck away from me. He started to receive offers for roles in movies as well as an invitation to join the National Theatre Company. His first steps in this field brought him success. Almost simultaneously, two movies hit the theaters, critically acclaimed movie Tim and occult dystopian movie Mad Max, directed by George Miller. It's going to take you ten minutes to hack through it with this. Now, if you're lucky, you can hack through your ankle in five minutes. But my daughter is important! I didn't do anything. I did not do anything. This is your selfish imagination. That's all. The Grim Road movie brought fame to the aspiring actor, and he earned 15,000 Australian dollars for that role. And eventually, Mad Max turned out to be the most successful Australian movie, grossing over $100 million worldwide. At first, the young actor didn't expect to get the lead role because he showed up to the audition after another fight. His face was swollen because of the bruises and abrasions. That's why he was advised to come back a few weeks later to try to get a role as one of the bandits. After getting himself together, Mel came back to the audition, and they offered him to try out the role of Max. No one realized that this handsome young man was there before, hungover and beaten. Fate gave Mel one gift after another, and this time he got lucky in his personal life. He met a charming dentist's assistant, Robin Moore. The couple met in Adelaide. The actor came there touring with the theater, but there's also an alternative version, according to which they met with the help of a dating agency. Perhaps he had to use the services of the professional matchmakers because as a young man, 
Gibson suffered from an inferiority complex. He had a lot of fleeting relationships, he fought a lot, he drank a lot, and he got in all kinds of trouble. After another fight, Mel was on the verge of death, and that was the reason for him to turn his life around. In 1980, Mel and Robin got married. The marriage was very solid. It lasted for almost 30 years. They had seven children, five sons, and two daughters. Getting a reliable refuge in his wife, Gibson proceeded to conquer the screens. In 1981, he starred in Miller's Mad Max 2 The Road Warrior. I'm, I'm sleeping with a baby. I'm waking up every two hours. I fell asleep because I was waiting for you because you weren't ready to go to jacuzzi as we agreed. Who the fuck cares? We agreed nothing. You agreed. You just fucking expect shit. Go to the goddamn jacuzzi yourself. Go to fuck this fucking jacuzzi. It's a sin. I was just... I didn't blame you for anything. I was just waiting and sleeping. You have no fucking soul. You can't give a fuck. I left my wife because we had no spiritual common ground. You and I have none. Zero. You won't even fucking try. The movie was received well by the audience and praised by the critics. It was mentioned as one of the best movies of that year. Mel earned $120,000 for the shooting. At the same time, he appeared in several successful movies. A war drama Gallipoli about the hardships of the First World War, for which Gibson earned $35,000 Australian dollars, and Attack for Z, an action film about the Second World War, which brought the actor $1,000 Australian dollars and a romantic drama film called The Year of Living Dangerously, in which he starred with Sigourney Weaver. In the next couple of years, Gibson rocked Hollywood like a hurricane. He starred in one top-notch film after another. In 1984, an adventure drama, The Bounty, came out. Then the actor starred in the drama film called The River, which he got nominated for several Oscars and a drama film called Mrs. Soffel. The popularity of the actor brought him a $1 million contract with a Japanese brewery called Asahi. According to the contract, the actor was obligated to regularly appear in public with a beer can. Gibson was thoroughly fulfilling the obligation, drinking around eight cans of beer a day in a row, and when advised to replace beer with tea or water, he refused. Probably that contract backfired at Gibson, because during this time he lost his driver's license for three months and got a $400 fine for drunk driving. You just enjoy insulting me, that's all. Fuck you, but, I so fucking do because you hurt me so bad. I didn't do anything. I did not do anything and I apologize for nothing. I did not do anything and I apologize for nothing. In 1985, the third Mad Max movie was released. This was the last time Gibson played that role. Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome was spectacular and action-packed, and Mel got 1.2 million Australian dollars for the role. Stop. 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 I wanted to peace. I wanted to have peace. Because, because you're unbalanced. You're unbalanced. You are unbalanced. You need medication. You need medication. He finally established his presence on the Hollywood Olympus by playing the lead role in the cult classic action movie Lethal Weapon in 1987. 
100,000. 100,000 dollars. Did you hear what he said? 100,000? I'm sorry, I can't afford that. None of my salary. The movie brought its creators a bunch of awards, including an Academy Award nomination for Best Sound Mixing. Martin Riggs, masterfully created by Mel, is one of the best cinema characters according to Empire Magazine. They filmed an alternative beginning, depicting the main character as a less likable person, as well as the ending. They were included in the DVD release. The success of the first film prompted the producers to make a sequel, and between the two parts of the franchise, Gibson starred in a crime film, Tequila Sunrise. After the end of the filming of Lethal Weapon 2 in 1989, it became clear that it's not commercially reasonable to kill this character, and the original script was rewritten to allow another sequel to be made. There are four movies in the franchise in total. It's all I'll accept, and if you will not fucking admit that, get the fuck out! And I will make your goddamn life miserable. All right? You need medication. What? You, what? You need medication. I need a woman, not a fucking little girl with a fucking dysfunctional cunt. I need a fucking woman. I don't need medication. You need a fucking bat in the side of the head. All right? How about that? You need a fucking doctor. You need a fucking brain transplant. You need a fucking, you need a fucking soul. I need medication. I need someone who fucking treats me like a man, like a human being with kindness, who understands what gratitude is because I fucking bend over backwards with my balls in a knot to do it all for her and she gives me shit like a fucking sour look or says I'm mean. Mel had to refuse the role of Batman to be able to star in the sequel. However, the magnificent performance in the first film gave Gibson the opportunity to fulfill the dream of any actor to play Hamlet in the film adaptation of Shakespeare's tragedy. The scene of Riggs' suicide attempt left director Franco Zeffirelli speechless, and he wanted only Mel to play the lead role. None of the major film companies wanted to fund the adaptation, so Gibson had to create his own company to begin the filming. This is how Icon Production was created. It introduced more than 20 movies. As a logo, Mel Gibson used a fragment of the Virgin of Vladimir icon. This made Mel Gibson very busy in the 90s. He starred in Bird on a Wire, Forever Young, and the action movie Air America. He got paid $7 million for the latter. In 1992, the fans saw the next movie about Martin Rakes. The third lethal weapon was a massive box office success and made Gibson richer by $10 million. Then, the American Western comedy Maverick thundered at the box offices, and Mel received even more money for it, $15 million. I might have said a gut was cheap, but, but never cheap. coward. Cheap! Never call a man a coward. I was teasing. Teasing! Oh. <laughs> I don't like being teased. This is mean! Get it? You get it now? What mean is? Get it? You fucking don't care about me. I'm having a hard time and you fucking yanked the rug, you bitch. You fucking selfless bitch. Don't you dare hang up on me. I can't listen to this anymore. You hang up, I'm coming over there. I'll call the police. What? I'll call the police. You fucking cunt. I'm coming to my house. You're in my house, honey. 
Yes, but you, honey, don't call me, honey. You just you're call me. in my house. It's... So I'll call the police and tell them there's someone in my house. How about that? You can do that. That's fine. Fuck you. I don't fall. I don't involve the police in anything because I stand up for myself. You, you weak cunt. You call the fucking cops. Then I will go to Alessia's right now. Why don't you fuck off to that cunt bitch, Alessia's? She was fucking making eyes at me. She'd have sucked me in five seconds. Take that one up with her. I was trying to spare your goddamn feelings. She'd have blown me in five seconds. She's not your friend. You don't have any fucking friends except me. And you treat me like shit. So that's why I'm so fucking angry. Because I don't have any friends. And I try and make one for you and you treat me like shit. And you fucking use me. The career is over. And boy, when I said that, you lit out of here faster than I've ever seen you before. And now you'll be in Alicia's place. You just showed me what you are. Absolutely, unequivocally. I don't care if you don't spend another thing. Listen to me. Listen to me. Listen, listen. I don't... Listen to me, Mel. I don't give a damn if you don't spend another penny on me. I don't care. I am just, I am just fearing for the life of my daughter. Listen to me. Listen to me. I'm... Listen. That's what you are, and you have just proved it. You got out of here in record time. Besides, the ambitious Australian man tried his hand at directing. He filmed his first movie and played the lead role in it, The Man Without a Face. Despite the hopes, was not successful, which can't be said about Gibson's next movie. The epic historical war drama about Scotland's struggle for freedom, Braveheart, blew up the screen. You tell your king that William Wallace will not be ruled, and nor will any Scot while I live. Because I'm saving my life and I'm saving daughter's life. That's what I'm doing. I don't give a damn about my music and I don't give a damn about you spending another penny. I'm saving her life. You almost killed us. Did you forget? You were hitting a woman with a child in her hands. You, what kind of man is that? Hitting a woman when she's holding a child in her hand, breaking her teeth twice in the face. What kind of man is that? You're gonna get you know to, what? you know what? <laughs> you're gonna answer one day, boy. You're gonna answer. Huh? Bear. What? What? what nothing, me? nothing. I'm not the one to threaten. I'm threatening. I'll put you in a fucking rose garden, you cunt. You understand that? Because I'm capable of it. You understand that? Get a fucking restraining order. For what? What are you gonna get a restraining order for? For me being drunk and disorderly? For hitting you? For what? What are you hoping to accomplish with that? What, are you going to pay me back? If you do that, it's over. It's over now. Fuck you. The proof of the appreciation were 10 Oscar nominations. The movie won five of them, including one to Mel Gibson himself for Best Director. He also won a Golden Globe for Best Director. The story of the film creation is full of fun facts. For example, Mel's character is only 20 years old according to the script, and the actor himself was 38 at the time of the filming. Initially, the movie was supposed to be much more gruesome, but they cut out controversial scenes from the film to lower the age rating. The animal rights activists had some issues with the movie because they didn't believe that No Horses was harmed during the filming. 
Gibson managed to get out of the scandal, he proved that some horses were mechanical. In 2000, in a special auction, the sword that was used by Gibson during the filming was sold for $170,000. In 1995, Mel tried his hand at animation. He took part in voice acting in two projects, Casper and Pocahontas. Right after that, Gibson starred in two thriller movies for which he got $20 million, Ransom and Conspiracy Theory. In 1998, Lethal Weapon 4 was released. Mel broke his personal record again and got $25 million for the role. Moreover, he signed a profitable advertising contract with a Japanese company, Subaru, and appears in the commercial driving a right-hand drive legacy sedan through Stockholm and New York. By the way, Mel himself chose another Japanese car. He's driving a modest sedan Toyota Cressida. At the turn of the century, the band saw Mel in another action movie called Payback and in the Million Dollar Hotel. He also voiced a character in Chicken Run. The historical drama The Patriot was praised by the audience, for which Gibson got $25 million. How dare you act like such a bitch when I'm being so fucking nice? I did not blame you. What? I've done nothing but be nice to you. I didn't blame you last I'm night. What are you little bitch this morning for? I wasn't, I wasn't doing anything. What did I do? And you said, oh, also earlier today, you, oh, never mind. What the fuck were you going to say? I, I wasn't going to say what any earlier today. It's just, I was going to say what last night. That's all. We were supposed to go to jacuzzi, and you said you have to wait for something. So why did you have to wait? You said... Did you go to the goddamn jacuzzi. I'm, I'm afraid it's dark outside. Fuck it. I just waited for you. I waited and waited till I fell asleep, and then... Waited and waited, like two and a half fucking minutes. You're fucking snoring. Don't you dare wait. You're blaming me right now. Now I'm blaming you. You went to sleep. I don't blame you. I deserve to be blown first before the fucking jacuzzi. It's peculiar that Mel asked to make several changes to the script. They added another child to the six children the character had because at that moment, Mel himself had seven children. The movie What Women Want holds a special place in Mel's career. and prank enthusiast, he brilliantly played the role of a charming ladies' man who gained the ability to hear women's thoughts after being electrocuted. The comedy film was a smashing hit, getting over $374 million in the worldwide box office. 
it was ranked fourth among the most successful movies of 2000. At the same time, Mel got into a huge-scale pharmaceutical war waged by the United States Department of Health and Human Services. It was trying to restrict the consumption of vitamins by the Americans. As a protest, Gibson appeared in a video in which his home is raided by a SWAT team. The actor, wearing a bathrobe and holding a vitamin C container, says to the SWAT team, it's just vitamins. Okay. And you know you're doing it! And you're a liar! And you're dishonest! And you're fucked up! So you stay the fuck away from me! Take care of your fucking son, and I better have my daughter! I just want my daughter and a maid! It's a lot less fucking trouble they clean up after themselves! They make your goddamn bed, which you did not! You don't have to worry about emotional blackmail or any of the other bullshit that you put me through! I just need a nice woman to look after my beautiful daughter! I don't have to fuck her already! You're a pain in the ass! Since the early aughts, Gibson has not been that active as an actor. He appeared in such films as Signs and We Were Soldiers, which brought him $50 million in total, a musical crime comedy, The Singing Detective, and the TV series Complete Savages. Mel spent more and more energy and resources on his own projects, mostly as a director. His 2004 epic biblical drama film, The Passion of the Christ, was a really huge event. The movie shocked the public, depicting the last 12 hours of the life of Jesus Christ. The dialogues in this movie were written in reconstructed Aramaic, ancient Hebrew, and Latin. Gibson, after the release of the movie, proclaimed that the Holy Spirit was the real creator of the film, and he was just a vehicle. He even donated $100 million to the Catholic Church. The filming process was very difficult. The lead actor was constantly injured, including a lightning strike. To make it more authentic, they decided to avoid using CGI. The job was done exclusively by makeup artists who spent 10 hours on it. Moreover, the actor who played Jesus received real lashes and carried a real wooden cross weighing 154 pounds. Thanks to this selfless and rigorous approach, the movie turned out to be grand. The whole society was shocked, including Pope John Paul II, who praised the movie. And Gibson's daughter, Hannah, was so impressed that she even expressed a desire to take the veil and become a nun. The phenomenal box office receipts of the movie was no surprise. It earned $609 million worldwide. Because of that, it is still in the top 10 of the highest grossing R-rated movies. After the filming, Mel decided to buy the lush green Mago Islands in Fiji Archipelago, measuring 8 square miles for $15 million. He said he plans on preserving the island's original condition for recreation, and he remains true to his words. The satellite images show only dirt airstrip, Mel Gibson's mansion in the northern part of the island, and houses of locals who are paid by the actor. Um, but don't hire to come there, okay? You get that message? Well, I'll pay her myself. I found her. She's my dentist's ex-babysitter. Fine, but I, if I need to use her, I will use That's her. Because I will not pay her if you bring her to your house. I will fire her and I will do it fast. 
Okay, then I'll pay her because I need her. She's good. No, you're paying her with my money. It doesn't matter what you give her. It's my fucking money. You understand? You're not have, you don't have your own money. You're only using my money. Okay? You, you made me moneyless. I used to have $100,000 a year when you met me. You took me. You possessed me. Everything I am, you owe me with my liver and my kidneys and my thoughts and my soul. Everything. My career or whatever it is. Pathetic career. Whatever it is is yours. You control me like marionette. I don't belong to myself, only to you. I can't do anything and I walk on the eggshells always with you. The next large-scale project of the Icon Company was the mystical movie Apocalypto, based on the historical myths and legends of the Maya tribe. Gibson was the producer, the director, and the screenwriter of the movie. Same as in the previous movie, Mill tried to make it as authentic as possible and didn't trust CGI to do the job. It was filmed mostly in the Mexican state of Veracruz, and they reconstructed step pyramids very close to the original. In the movie, Mayans are depicted as very cruel people, which was criticized by many historians and representatives of one of the ethnic communities filed a report to the Human Rights Commission of the Yucatan state. At the same time, there was a huge scandal when Mel was arrested for drunk driving again. This time, the movie star acted really inappropriately, shouting anti-Semitic slogans and racial slurs. This stunt almost ruined Gibson's reputation, but he got away with it. He publicly apologized, speaking about lapses in judgment he's having from time to time. After this incident, Gibson retreated into the shadows for 10 years and didn't film any movies. That's because you're a fucking using whore. Now, I own you. Do not use at your house. I have warned you, she will be fired if she goes to your house. You find that cunt and you find some other money that's not mine. Okay? No, I'm using a B. She's fired. Do you understand that? Fine. She's don't fired. Don't fire her because I won't pay her. Okay, don't pay her. And I will fire her. That's okay. Only works at my house. Well, she's, she does nothing to do at your house. Baby's here. The baby should be here and she should work at my house. Baby is where I am. You're insane. Be there for long. I will fire if she is at your house. I will make it known and fire her. Fine. I'll report her to the fucking people that take fucking money from the wetback, okay? Mel, you can't just take a woman who gives you a child, who gives you the entire life. You drag her through God knows what bad press. I've never had a bad word said about me in the entire life. And then, and then you telling me, and then you telling me that you take away whatever pennies that you just given to me. I don't have anything because I've given you my life three years now. I gave you everything. Don't you dare fucking complain to me. Craving for solitude, in 2007, Mel bought a mansion with a plot of land of 400 acres on the Costa Rica coast. He has been thinking about buying a piece of this picturesque land when he was searching for a location for the apocalypto shooting. He bought it for $26 million. This ranch consists of a villa surrounded by tropical forest and a cute backyard. The home features several classic colonial-style bedrooms, wood-dominated dining rooms, and an on-site pool. Later, Mel tried to sell the house for $35 million. After all, Mel Gibson is not just a great actor, but a good businessman as well. 
he knows how to sell. In 2007, he sold another mansion in the Tudor style in Connecticut for $40 million, which he bought in 1994 for $9 million. This 15-bedroom castle-like mansion is surrounded by a stunningly beautiful garden, and the interiors of the living room with fireplace, library, and dining room are strikingly rich and charmingly old-fashioned. I can hear you. You don't fucking count. You're a fucking using whore. What did I use you for? I've given you everything I had. I've given you everything. I've been your woman. I've given you a child. What the fuck are you talking about? Bitch, that's all. You would have done it for any fucking You probably fucked Wow. I know you did. That fucking yes. I swear in front of God I never have. Fucking ugly man. You don't give a fuck so long as they pay your fucking rent. I am not the whore and I'm not the bitch and I'm not the cunt and I'm not the user and I'm not the thief and all those words and I'm not a liar. All this, all this lies, all this lies. I'm not a whore or cunt or thief or prostitute or anything that you call me. I'm not a user, not a gold digger. I don't have any money and no property assigned to me. That's a gold digger for you? Are you insane? Yes, you are, of course. We can hear that because you're screaming. Don't call me bitch. Don't call me. You have no right. I don't have a penny to me. What kind of gold digging, what kind of gold digging whore is this? Oh, God, cry, poor enough. You could go through money like a fucking whore. This break from the film industry and property purchase can be explained by the problems in his personal life. In the spring of 2009, there were rumors that Mel's solid family split up. Allegedly, the spouses had not been living together for three years. Soon, Gibson showed up to the premiere of X-Men Origins Wolverine with a Russian pianist and singer Oksana Grigorieva. She met Gibson during the filming of one of the movies, and pretty soon, the smitten actor became the producer of her album. There is a theory that the meeting was not an accident, but was organized by a known-in-certain-circles matchmaker, Peter Listerman. However, this information is not confirmed at all. After the joint appearance in the news about Oksana being four months pregnant, Robin filed for divorce and got half of the net worth of the adulterer, $850 million. Besides that, Mel has to pay half of his income to his ex-wife, and later she got two Malibu mansions worth a total of $22.5 million. Actually, the breakup fee of the Gibsons is considered to be one of the largest in the history of Hollywood. In October 2009, Mel and Oksana had a daughter, who became the eighth child of the actor. The new family with newborn Lucienne lived in a $11.5 million mansion situated in Malibu. You want the fucking dress, you want the tickets, you want the fucking equipment. Funny how it went from 33 to 33. Mel, Mel, the equipment is instead of payment. If you hire any composer, you'll have to pay 200000 plus. I don't have to. I can do it for nothing. I don't need you, and I don't want you doing it. I don't think you can do it. All right? That's Fine. how little I think of your fucking talent. Yeah, well, it's clear now. It's all coming out now. Mel bought the house from his friend, David Duchovny, but the family life didn't work out, and after 18 months, the couple split up, and a few months later, Grigoryva filed a police report stating that she was physically abused by Gibson. 
They have opened a criminal case against Mel, and he received three years suspended sentence, a $400 fine, and a restraining order prohibiting him from seeing their mutual daughter. Also, the court ordered him to pay his common-law spouse a $750,000 compensation and pay $40,000 each month until the child reaches the age of 18. True. Yeah. I think you just I think you just all you want to do is just shove me in a hole and sit me at home so much for your promise. I want to let you fly. This is such bullshit. It's such arrogant bullshit. You never meant to do that. What? What? I gave you every fucking opportunity. And I've, I've done extremely well. But nobody asks you to spend so much money on the videos and everything. And why do you count my food out of my mouth? Why do you do that? I live with you. I gave you a baby. We're together. And you counting that and summering it all up? And why do you not separate those two? If you count the food in my mouth, why don't you separate it? And how about you giving me money and I'm feeding you and going shopping all the time and buying you extravagant presents? Stop talking about you fucking ignorant bitch. I don't understand you. You're saying stupid shit. How dare you fucking even insult me with some of the stupid reasoning you have. Your logic sucks because you're a fucking mentally deprived idiot. Also, Oksana got a mansion in Sherman Oaks, which Gibson bought in 2009 for $2.4 million. The court ordered Mel to pay maintenance costs as well, but the woman wanted more. So she posted on social media a recorded phone call between her and Mel, during which he used racial slurs. This almost cost the actor his career and reputation. Many people turned against him, but not Jodie Foster, Robert Downey Jr., Robert Rodriguez, and Sylvester Stallone. They helped out the actor. Thanks to Rodriguez and Stallone, he managed to appear in such movies as Machete Kills, where he played a villain for the first time, and The Expendables 3. You uh, can't even fucking figure out. I have to go to the bank. The tax money instead of the credit card. Don't you get it? Goodbye, Mel. Baby's crying. I have to go. Look after my child. She's my child, too. Yeah, I know. Unfortunately, you can't, whore. I hope she doesn't turn out like you. As a result of the loud scandal, the filming of the action movie Get the Gringo was delayed, and the premiere of the eccentric drama The Beaver was canceled. It was planned to premiere in December 2010, considering the Oscar nominations, but it was released only in May 2011. The premiere was a flop. The movie failed at the box office. To top it all off, in 2010, the actor got into a car accident. He crashed his Maserati car against a rock cliff on one of the Malibu roads. Fortunately, Gibson was not harmed, which can't be said about the car. It had to be towed. It was completely totaled. After this point, the actor decided to drive a convenient electric smart car. He's been driving it for many years already. Mel tried to forget about the previous relationship, and in 2012, it was reported that he's dating athlete Ashley Cusato, but it didn't last very long. The next period of Mel's life can be considered a reset. He was completely inactive both in professional and personal life. Only in 2016, Gibson renewed his activity. He appeared in the action film Bloodfather and then directed Hacksaw Ridge, which brought him an Oscar nomination as Best Actor. Also, it was reported that his new girlfriend, Rosalind Ross, is pregnant with the actor's ninth child. You fucking offend me. And you don't care about anyone but yourself. And your fucking stupid fucking failed career. And it's ruined us. 
because you fucking can't get that. Fuck it, you wanted the dress from I can't believe you asked for that. And the tickets in the Lakers box, I got rid of the box, and now nobody gets tickets because of you. I had to sell the motherfucker. Why is it because, because of, of me? You. Why is it because of me? What kind of bullshit is this? I sold it because of you. I don't have any Why? money. I have to support you and everybody else. I have to sell paintings. Well, maybe it's because of them. Maybe. The Lakers game. Well, maybe it's because of others that you sold it. Why do you? Why are you blaming it on me? Did you ask for that when you know what kind of trouble I'm in? I've never used your box. Never once did I ask you. This is the first time because your relationship with Sasha is so fucked up because of your violence. On January 20, 2017, the couple had a baby. They named him Lars Gerard. Thus, Mel has the second place in the top of actors with the largest number of kids. Only Charlie Chaplin had more kids than Mel. He had 11. But something tells us that Gibson may beat this record. In the last couple of years, Gibson appeared as an actor in such movies as Dragged Across Concrete, Boss Level, Force of Nature, Dangerous, and Daddy's Home 2. I was trying to make amends with between you and him. Not make amends, be a diplomat between uh, you and him. I'll tell you that the box is gone because of you. Not because of me, because you have to feed an army. Why is it because of me? What kind of bullshit is this? How much money do you spend on me? You don't spend more money on me than anybody else. That's not on me. And that was that was signed. I was signed to That was signed to the record label. I always said thank you. I know you doubt me. I I don't care anymore. Me. I don't care anymore, okay? I don't want you either. That's it. That makes it real clear. That was so easy. The minute I pull the plug, you're out of here. You can't. Mel, I'm saving. I'm, I'm saving. I cannot be with somebody like this. You don't love me. I'll take care of the child. You don't love me. This is not, this is not somebody who loves me. This is some completely off-balance person who absolutely hates me. Why do you hate me so much? What did I do to you? Everything you say about me is bullshit. It's bullshit. It's bullshit. And I only left to save. It's bullshit. The most peculiar film he starred in recently is probably The Professor and the Madman, 2018. This movie was in production for 17 years. The filming process was full of scandals and lawsuits, so the production company Voltage Pictures banned the crew from filming in Oxford, England. The reason given was budget overruns and lack of time, and as a result, the filming was moved to Ireland. Enraged, Gibson couldn't let the company cripple his film this way, and he tried to ban the release of the film through the court, but he failed. In revenge, he decided not to participate in the advertising campaign. You fucking You ruined my life, and you didn't give me a penny. I ruined your life. How did I ruin your life? I gave you shit. You gave me nothing but fucking grief. All right? And bad publicity, you cunt. How did I ruin your life? You destroyed my reputation, and you're the meanest person I, I know. I destroyed it because that shit's true. You're the meanest person. What? You're very mean. Yeah, you know what mean is now, don't 
you've always been. So don't call me mean you're very I, jealous I, and you're very mean. I like to show you what mean really is. Bitch, cunt, whore, gold digger. All true. You fucking proved it to me. If you're ever interested in proving otherwise, let me know. If you don't care, I know you know what you are, too. Look at yourself and look what you've done. Look what you fucking done. Look at your son. He's a fucking mess. You fucking excuse for a mother. You're a fucking bitch. You're the worst father I ever met. Goodbye. In 2021, Gibson appeared in the action films Agent Game, Dangerous, and Last Looks. And the following year, audiences could see the actor in Father Stew, On the Line, Hot Seat, Panama, and Bandit. After all the lawsuits and alimony, Mel Gibson's net worth is now $425 million. Despite the fact that according to some open source estimates, Mel received a record sum of $450 million for The Passion of the Christ, and invested only $30 million of his personal money. According to the most recent accounts, Mel is not sitting idle. Gibson is gonna be the director of Lethal Weapon 5. Besides, he will play the lead role in the Continental miniseries, which is about to be released. The most intriguing is the rumor that the actor is working on the sequel of his epic film about the life and death of Jesus Christ, called The Passion of the Christ Resurrection, where Gibson will act as director, screenwriter, and producer. We tried our best to tell you all about the life of this brilliant actor, talented director, and unique person, Mel Gibson. Do you think he'll manage to surprise the world with a new masterpiece as he did with Braveheart and The Passion of the Christ? What are you talking about? You're out of here in 15 minutes. I've never seen you clear out so fast as when I said I'd pull the plug on your fucking lustic bullshit. You said you pulled the plug. Living here today was Comedy. You've told me a hundred times you're going to pull a plug. And you will. I know, and I don't give a damn. I'm just saving my child's life because you are a monster. That's all. You're a monster. Okay, you're yelling now. Okay. You are a complete monster. I don't give a damn about the fucking career which you spend money on. Not me. I never asked you to do that. Ever. You fucking you ask me for money all the time and you've had my money to the tune of hundreds of thousands of dollars so don't you say you didn't ask for it you asked for every penny i don't and have you. anything and i've signed no, the paper i've signed i've signed the paper that enables me to get i can't get anything from you ever nor can i ask of anything how dare you lie like that i've signed the paper I have signed the paper. I don't want anything from you. I don't have anything. My child, and she doesn't need a gold-digging fucking Russian cunt. She's, she's... We all know what you are. She certainly... That child. She certainly... I'm sorry? You will not have this child. You keep her, because they'll know what you are. Mel, you're imbalanced. There's something wrong with you. You need medication. You cannot raise this child with this symptoms. What? You're acting as a crazy man right now. And you have been for many, many months. And you hit me and you hit her whilst she was in my hands. Mel, you're losing your mind. You need medication. You need a fucking kick up the ass for being a bitch, cunt, gold-digging whore with a pussy son. And I want my child, and no one will believe you. So fuck you.
and I'm not giving you my house, and you can rot unless you crawl back, suck my cock, and say you're sorry in that order. Do you understand me? You fucking offend my fucking maleness, my masculinity, my being, my soul. And you call me a sinner. You're a fucking movie violation. If you get raped, it's your fault, Priscilla's showing up your fake tits. Like they're some special deal. Are you crazy? How they cost those fakers? Are you crazy? You complain about mastitis? They're fake, baby. Come on, you got little bladders in there. You think I'm an idiot? Have you said everything? I said nothing. You need to say a lot to assuage my insanity because you made me this way. I didn't make you this way. You fucking did so. You were born this way. My friends, we must protect Mel Gibson at all costs because he's one of the very few people working in Hollywood who's willing to stand up to a lot of the insanity that is going on. And we've heard all these crazy rumors and reports that have been circulating over the past couple of months about secret projects that Mel Gibson is currently working on that could be exposing Hollywood and undermining a lot of the nonsense and insanity that they are engaging in and some of the very corrupt things that they are a part of. And a lot of this is now coming to a head with this very corrupt crazy video that he just put out yesterday on Twitter that has the entire internet blowing up over this entire thing. So we're going to take a look at this, see what he has to say in this video. This is absolutely insane. So it all started here with, of course, this new film that we know is coming out soon, which is called Sound of Freedom. I did a, a video on it a couple weeks ago where I basically was breaking down the film and some of the things that Jim Caviezel, who stars in the film and played Jesus in the passion uh, film that Mel Gibson made uh, a couple decades ago, had to say about this film and of of course, this film is going to be exposing a lot of the things like the human trafficking stuff that continues to happen in our country. And so this is a very important film and something that needs to be made in order to raise awareness about some of the stuff that is going on. So it all started here with this tweet, okay? This tweet is coming from Jack Posobiec where he said, say no to Disney and Indiana Jones, say yes to Sound of Freedom. And I totally agree, okay? Because Indiana Jones is going to be a complete trash fire. I'm calling it the disaster of destiny because that is exactly what it is. It is not worth your time, okay? It is a film that should not be filling up, should not be getting the financial support, none of that stuff. F Disney, F the ways that they continue to ruin all of these franchises. Instead, go support this amazing film that is going to be coming out called Sound of Freedom. But... Then we have this crazy twist that is going on here because then Mel Gibson got involved in this entire thing with this absolutely insane video. So let's go ahead and check this out. Breaking Mel Gibson urges everyone to go see Sound of Freedom. And you know, you know that there are going to be a lot of elites in Hollywood who are going to be very, very upset because Mel Gibson is promoting this film about this topic. I'm going to share a story with you today. We have about 150 uh, employees, um, I think about 80 contractors. We're in five regions around the world doing operations and aftercare, supporting law enforcement and um, putting up numbers like we never have and, and doing more rescues than, than ever before. And, and really, I thank you. You're the ones that make it happen. Um, you're the light that we take in, into the darkness. And so it's to you that I want to tell this story. It's probably the most significant rescue operation I've ever been a part of. Uh, just happened this year, and it was God-directed, and it was revealing more than just rescuing a bunch of kids, hundreds, probably thousands in the end. Uh, it was an operation that proved to me why 
we exist, why a private organization would function and need to function within the other, the many governments who we support who cannot move how we need them to move to rescue children. If you know my origin story, I, I spent 12 years uh, in, the UN, in the government as an undercover operator, special agent with Homeland Security, fighting child crimes and trafficking, and just couldn't move fast enough because of all sorts of things, jurisdictional limitations and, and bureaucracy. And it just got so frustrating that we thought we'd try it privately. And, and uh, there's no other way we could have pulled off this operation, which we're calling the hidden war. Um, there's no way we could have otherwise blown through six countries, six governments, and rescued hundreds of children all in the small window of four months. It began in Ukraine. We went to Ukraine, and I don't care about the politics. It has nothing to do with this. These are children, orphans, who were in bomb zones, target zones, and we went in to just get them out. We went in in an extraction effort. That's where I thought it was going to end. I credit my wife with this whole thing. When Russia invaded Ukraine, she said, you got to go to Ukraine. You need to put your boots on the ground. I said, hey, we have a Europe office now. Like, I don't have to be everywhere. And she, she just, and through her tears and biting her lip because she didn't want to say it, but she knew she had to because she felt it. You need to go yourself. And what she was mostly worried about was 12 kids. The OUR was working to get out of the country through adoption. There's some countries that are high trafficking areas and that we have a project called Children Need Families where we find families and provide grants. There's some countries and Ukraine happens to be one where if you're an orphan, the chances of you being trafficked or exploited are so high. And so we knew that when the war began, when Russia invaded, all those adoptions got shut down and she wanted me to go find these kids. I didn't want to go. I was scared to go. Bombs were dropping <laughs> and I didn't know how effective we could be. But God works with a lot of witnesses, and within a very unusual, bizarre uh, witness appeared within an, an hour or two of my wife insisting I go to Ukraine. Got a phone call from Mel Gibson. He actually did the final edit of The Sound of Freedom. That's how we know each other, but not well, not well enough that I'd be getting phone calls. They told me that he was in Budapest at the time. This was right hours after the invasion, and he said he supports a bunch of orphans in Ukraine, and he was worried about them, and he asked if I could help get them out. So now I've got 12 from my wife, I got 13 others from Mel Gibson. And I'm thinking, okay, I got this list of kids I got to get out. Um, I told Mel, I said, you got to help me. This is going to be expensive. I won't ask you for direct donation, but can you help me film this? You know, let's film what's happening so we can get people to understand and they can support us. He said, no problem. He helped us get set up and started filming. Four months later, what I thought was going to be maybe a documentary about Ukraine ends up being a four-part docu-series. It's almost done. It's being produced by DNA Films and executive produced by Tony Robbins. That's how crazy it got and how prophetic my wife was. When I showed up in Ukraine with a list of, I think, 20 names, the Ukrainians countered me and gave me over 10,000 names of orphans that they didn't know where they were because of the chaos caused by war. And more importantly, and, and more frightening to me, was the fact that I know that human trafficking is a $32 billion a year business. It's the fastest growing criminal enterprise in the world. And I also know how kids get forced into that market. And it's through vulnerable situations, like in the aftermath of a hurricane, mostly in a developed country or an earthquake, or in this case, a war. And so the traffickers call it harvest time. And that was the intel we were getting. 
And so we weren't just there to extract those kids, but look for leads. And it really was a miracle what happened. You know, it's, it's one of these things that, you know, faith precedes the miracle. I take a lot of comfort in the fact that there's only one time in the scripture where Jesus gets mafioso. It's righteous because it's Jesus doing it. But if you listen to his words, it's mafioso. He says that it would be better for you to have a millstone cast about your neck and you thrown to the bottom of the sea than that you would hurt one of these little ones, my children. That's mafioso action, sinking someone to the bottom of the ocean. And Jesus said it. So I know where he stands on it. So I can expect and we can expect miracles when we're fighting to protect children. I never thought, I never dreamed there'd be a day when this world that I've been fighting for 20 years doing child crimes cases and human trafficking cases, these guys have always been peripheral monsters, but peripheral rogues, renegades hiding out. Not anymore. The culture has changed. Evil has gripped our nation. We want to go find these Ukrainian war victims uh, who are missing, little children crying over the dead bodies of their parents. And a van comes up and says, hey, we'll take you. And so now we're in about March of this year. And that's when another miracle walks in this female you see. She'd been recruited by another organization who we work with called Free a Girl in Europe. Turns out she's 35 years old. She's an actress. She's brilliant. And she can look 12 or she can look 25 or 30, whatever. It's it just, and she was the top of the class. So the second day of the training is when I get this lead from a Dutch police asset, a friend of mine who reveals to me about this guy, Nelson Matzman, the leader of a political party. It was formed in, in 2016 and reformed in 2020. Um, and these guys, their goal is to legalize sex with children. This guy, even by Dutch standards, which is pretty tough to get arrested in Holland for anything, and even he's arrested along with three of his lieutenants. So even the Dutch arrest them, but the Dutch don't do what they should. They give their passports back, let them wait their trial and freedom, and they take off. And no one knows where they are. But they're discovered because this Matman guy, at least, pokes his head out online because he's looking to traffic Ukrainian kids. He's in the sex market in Mexico. He's been there for two years. And that's how he gets revealed. So this Dutch cop calls me and he says, hey, I don't think my government's going to do anything about this. And said, I know you guys would do something with this. So off we went with our team from Eastern Europe into Mexico. We set this whole operation up. But we got him out. And we got him to give us information about where the next guys were. Because we got him. He's the leader. But what are his, where are his lieutenants? And his lieutenants, a guy named Martin and a guy named Leslie. Um, and how we set it up, we brought him to this suite in Mexico City. He believed I was an American trafficker that he was going to work with to get kids. I still do undercover work occasionally. You wouldn't recognize me, right? But we have prosthetics and I have prosthetic scars I can put on my face. So this guy, he had no idea. We get this party for him and he doesn't want to talk. He's scared to death, which we knew he would be, which is why we set the hotel near a huge park in Mexico City. Because he wouldn't talk to us in the party because he's scared. He's the most wanted pedophile in the world. I just need to ask him one question. The Mexicans already got him. They got him on gun possession, child exploitation material, all sorts of stuff. They did a phenomenal job. I just wanted to get him to talk to me. So I could only ask him one time, where is Martin and Leslie? But I have to wait because if I ask him twice, I'm too curious. So I waited till we went down to the park. I watched his body just relax. He turns to me and he says, I now know you're not a cop. 
And I said, how do you know I'm not a cop? And he says, because you would have arrested me in the hotel room. I said, yeah, I would have. Again, all part of the plan. And then he said, I know you're not a Dutch assassin because for the same reason, you would have killed me up in the hotel room, not in a public park. I said, you're absolutely right, man. I, I am who I say I am. And so a few minutes later, I knew I could go for the, the kill shot and, and I asked him, so where are those guys, Leslie and Martin? I read about them. And now he's relaxed. He knows I'm not a cop. And he says, well, they run a sex hotel. I knew exactly what he was saying, a child sex hotel. These pedophiles will set up a home, a hotel. People will come in, pay top dollar. And these guys were after little boys. In fact, if you were 11 years old, you were too old to be in this sex hotel, 10 years and younger. So he's telling me this. And I said, well, I'd love to go to that hotel. He's like, I don't know you well enough yet. I can't take you there. I said, well, have you been there? He says, yeah, I've been there. And I said, good. That's really all I needed to know because I'll, I'll not find out where it is because we're raiding your house tonight. I didn't tell him this. This was in my head. We're raiding your house tonight and your passports are going to be there and I'll find. I said, well, how long were you there? He says, I was a bartender there for about two months. I said, oh, perfect. There's not going to be more than two countries where you were, bar where you were somewhere for two months. Um, sure enough, uh, we raided the house that night. Our intel unit then, it just took him a few hours to find. We got the passport. Ecuador was the country that he had been in. We did a deep dive in the dark net and all through uh, social media and found that uh, Leslie, he made a mistake one time, used his real name on an Airbnb ad, a guy named Leslie, which is not a Latin American name, obviously, and was advertising a little boutique hotel in a little village on the beach in a town called Canoa in Ecuador. So we head over to Ecuador. Um, also, there's a few countries. We work in 30, about 20, 30 countries, but there's two countries that you really don't want to be hiding in if we're looking for you. And one of them is Mexico and one of them is Ecuador. And that just happens to be where these guys, again, you, you just see heaven's hand over this whole thing. We got a warrant. Again, I, I, gotta, I have to recognize God's hand one more time here because when we got to the hotel, um, you know, 50-50 chance. Is it them? Probably, maybe not. Who knows? We got there within an hour of setting surveillance up on this little hotel. Uh, we see the faces pop out of the window, walk out of the door of, of Martine and Leslie. It was a positive hit, but we didn't have enough evidence. There wasn't enough evidence to break the place down and go into that house. And right then, the second hour of day one of surveillance, two other guys come walking out of the house. They were the next guys on the list we were going to look for. They just happened to be visiting and abusing children at the time we showed up. And they took their computers and we, we tracked them to the Guayaquil airport. They flew to Miami, probably maybe to set something up here. But we called Homeland Security, our friends there, and they picked them up, found evidence of child exploitation material. They were wrapped up. They're now back in jail in Holland. And we got the evidence we needed in like a little window to get the warrant for the hotel. And you're clapping for God right now because that was just, um, that was just nothing but a miracle. How could that happen right then? And so we were able to breach the house, go in. And then at that point, there was about 400 children that we have so far identified. We've, we've never seen something like this. We have actually set up an aftercare home in Kanoa, in the village itself, because almost every child there has probably been abused. The really good news is the prosecutor reached out to us a few weeks ago, and he said that when we hit the hotel, I remember seeing it was in a state of rebuild. They were, they were renovating it, and the prosecutor confirmed these guys hadn't really even launched the business out yet. They had just kind of tested it. So, I mean, the timing, it was God's timing before they finished it. So we prevented probably thousands of children over many, many years of being exploited in this little remote village. 
I finally get home from this operation. I remember sitting in my living room, just kind of decompressing. I looked over and saw my wife doing all the things. You know, we have uh, nine children and just craziness all the time. And, and I started just crying, looking at her, because I realized something. That, I mean, she was much braver than me. Can you imagine sending your husband and you had nine children into a war zone without really a really clear objective? Uh, just because she knew the Lord was telling her to send me to do that. Um, and it just didn't hit me till four months later what actually happened. The biggest miracle, the most beautiful miracle of all of them was that she didn't even know. She couldn't articulate why, but God knew that there were 400 plus children and thousands of targets um, streaming out of the sex hotel in Kanoa, Ecuador and other victims in Mexico and maybe around the world. And he knew that they were there. And he knew that he just had to tell one of his daughters to send her husband to Ukraine, that he take care of the rest. And that was the biggest miracle of all. Um, the most important fruit, I think, is what we discovered when we dug deep into this literature of this political party. It was shocking. It's this big reveal. I've, I'm almost finished with a book called The Child Trap, which will be coming out in a couple months here. Um, and it's shocking. We identified seven, we call them the PNDs, the pedophile network doctrines. This is what they are preaching and have been preaching. Pedophiles organized around the world have been preaching these doctrines for decades. The child abuse is always in the name of liberating the child. This is not about me. This is not about my lust as a pedophile. This is about the children that need to be liberated. The LGBTQ movement, they're the enemies unless they let the pedos join. In other words, the pedos want to eliminate the name pedophile because that's derogatory. You know what they're trying to change the name to, right? The minor attracted persons. They want LGBTQMAP. And they write about how the LGBTQ movement, if they don't let the MAP add, then they're the enemies. And for the most part, the LGBT movement is not letting them in. Some of my friends who, who I follow, an amazing group called Gays Against Groomers. Like, you're not going to come in here. We are not can be part of this. Parents are the enemy unless they let the pedos have their children for providing excess of sexual content to children. You got to fill their heads with sex. In their literature, it's all about liberating the minds of these children. But give them sex, give them sex, give them porn. Their brains are going to congeal and form around that. They're sex addicts by the time they're 12 or 13. It's exactly what the pedophiles want, don't they? That's what they're trying to do. Normalize the adult-child sex relationship through legalizing child exploitation material, adding new terminology like minor attractive persons. Hide and disguise the harmful effects, including scientific evidence that their agenda might have on children. For example, what's happening with science on pornography. And then, of course, number seven, you must remove God from any education. Because, of course, God is the great protector of children. The little boy who you see in the, in the picture, he jumped into my arms. And as I held him, he almost immediately saw this shiny thing on my neck. It was the necklace. Now, this, this is the necklace that is so symbolic to our organization. It was a necklace that was given to me by one of the first children uh, about 10 years ago that, that I had pulled out of a trafficking ring. And he gave me that necklace, that little boy. And so here I am holding this, this, this really this, this slave, this little child who's for sale. And he sees this necklace and it, it, it even says on it, it's a replica of the original. 
that I had on my neck. Um, he see, and it says Operation Underground Railroad. And he pulls it off my neck and he puts it around his neck. And, you know, here I am trying to be this, this kind of tough trafficker and I'm biting my lip so I don't start crying. The boy handing Ballard his sister's necklace is woven into the film's plot. Part of the movie's trivia lore was Ballard asking the film's producers to leave out the necklace segment. Tim Ballard actually asked the producers to not include the scene where he gets the necklace from the young boy because he thought nobody would believe it, even though it really happened. The upcoming Sound of Freedom movie does not focus on OUR's failed attempts to find Gardy, but on freeing the five-year-old boy at the Calexico border and the arrest of his abuser, Earl Buchanan. In 2019, Ballard met with then-President Donald Trump in support of Trump's border wall. He wrote about it in a guest editorial in the Deseret News. Ballard offered his rescue of the five-year-old boy at the Calexico crossing as proof the existing wall in that section was working. There is a significant border wall between Mexicali, Mexico, where he took the child, and Calexico, California. Buchanan was compelled to take his chances at the Calexico port of entry, which is armed with high-tech monitoring equipment and well-trained officers who look into the eyes of every person seeking entry, which eventually led to Buchanan's arrest. Of course, that's the beginning of The Sound of Freedom's main storyline. Canadian actor Gary Basaraba portrays Earl Buchanan, who was arrested at the border on July 3rd, 2006. The story about that arrest and events that followed involving the boy and his sister is ostensibly true. As the movie poster says, the boy and girl had been sold into slavery, and when their country looked away, only one could save them. Not just the film's poster, which says it is based on the powerful true story, but others speak to accuracy. The film chronicles the true story of Tim Ballard. This movie is a true life story of Tim Ballard. Highlights the true story of Tim Ballard. This is the true story of real life superhero Tim Ballard. An absolutely brilliant film which tells the true story of one of Tim Ballard's most heroic and adventurous rescue missions. Fact-checking truthfulness to see if Ballard deserves any Pinocchios requires getting into a lot of detail, especially how the movie ends. Which brings me to the spoiler alert I talked about earlier. If you're waiting to see the movie, whether in theaters, if it ever gets there, or via streaming, and don't want the ending spoiled, you should quit watching this video. A hint as to the primary theme is provided by the trailer. Rocio, age 11, is sold into sex slavery. We're talking about extracting an 11-year-old little girl from an army of rebels, says Caviezel's voice in the trailer. If you watch my previous report, you'll recall Dennis Rice, who once owned the Sound of Freedom distribution rights for North America. 
late last year, Rice appeared at a right-wing extremist patriot conference in Las Vegas, a group that tried to raise money to fund the movie's distribution to theaters. Rice was introduced by conspiracy theorist Juan O'Savin. During his talk, Rice succinctly summarized the movie's plot line in a few sentences. When I saw the movie, which is a true story about a real patriot named Tim Ballard, former CIA agent turned Homeland Security agent in charge of Border Patrol, rescues an eight-year-old boy from Honduras coming over the Mexican border into America, only to find out that his 11-year-old sister has been sold to a drug cartel lord pedophile in Colombia. But because he's Homeland Security, he can't go down there. So he quits his job, he asks his wife if he can mortgage the house, and takes the $40,000 that he got and goes out to Columbia and saves this little girl. Recapping, a Honduras boy and his sister are kidnapped. The boy is smuggled into the U.S. across the Mexican border and forced into commercial sex slavery by pedophile Earl Buchanan. His sister is sold to a pedophile Colombian drug lord who keeps her as his personal sex slave. Ballard rescues the boy in the United States from Buchanan's clutches. Because the government Ballard works for will not act, he mortgages his house and sets out to rescue the boy's sister. Rice gave away most of the plot but fell short of disclosing the ending. So I ask an OUR supporter, was at a private showing in Las Vegas last year to lay out the storyline. Jared J. Brown, a Washington, D.C. consultant and former Orrin Hatch legislative assistant, liked the film, calling it one of the best films I've ever seen. It's a mind-blowing story. It feels like the very best Rambo movie. It's like Taken. It's a true story. Tim Ballard is a living hero maybe a superhero. Brown met Jim Caviezel at the screening. Along with his friend from St. George, he described talking to Caviezel as an intensely spiritual experience. He is very obviously a man of God. Brown describes the plot. An 11-year-old girl and her brother are lured outside their home on the pretext a talent agency is filming them for job applications. It's a sham audition. The siblings are kidnapped, separated, and farmed out. They vanish. Ballard first saved the boy at the border while still a U.S. Homeland Security agent. The boy gave Ballard the necklace. Ballard promises to rescue his sister. Ballard's government agency will not authorize him to rescue her, so he quit, founded OUR, and put together an armed strike force. As the team searched for the missing girl, they rescue other child sex slaves along the way. So far, so good. The storyline is similar to stories Ballard has been telling publicly since 2013. At that point, the movie breaks new ground going where Ballard had not gone publicly before, to the place the trailer hints at. After gathering intelligence and being inspired by God, Ballard learns the girl is being held deep in the jungle, 
where a guerrilla army is hiding. She becomes the pedophile guerrilla leader's personal sex slave. Ballard determines he must go in alone, without his team, and even without his own firearm. This shot is from the movie's preview. He takes on the persona of a doctor who is working to stop the spread of a deadly, highly contagious disease. When most of the rebel fighters are drunk, Ballard confronts the drug lord and kills him. Ballard either killed the bad guy with a knife or bashed his head in. Brown cannot remember which. Ballard flees with the girl and is taken to safety after meeting his team at a rendezvous point. It was a Rambo-like rescue. In the film Last Blood, John Rambo, according to one critic, is presented as a deadly white savior who's there to rescue his Latina surrogate daughter, who was sold to a Mexican drug cartel as a sex slave. Brown believes the story is probably due many OUR believers who have been to pre-release screenings. I ask, do you think this really happened? He answered, it's all a true story. I ask, are you quite certain? It's like a story that is made up, but it's true. Question, Ballard has never told the girl extraction from Rebel story before. Why? Sometimes if you have a good story, you save it for the right time, for a movie. The truth is, Ballard duped Brown. The storyline is false from beginning to end. Ballard's story that culminates with the dramatic rescue of the boy's sister in Columbia depends on there having been a kidnapping in the first place of the boy and the girl. The story does not work if one or both live at home in the United States. It does not work if one or both are groomed for sex abuse, not abducted. You might recall Ballard invited his listeners to go online and check the validity of his Earl Buchanan story. We got intel. Uh, an American man had was kidnapping children in Mexico, smuggling them into the United States. And in San Bernardino, you can look this, this case up. His name's Earl Buchanan. You can look it up. You can Google, learn all about the case. So I did. The true story has been hiding in plain sight. Police reports and court records document that an Earl Buchanan, accompanied by a five-year-old boy, was stopped at the border on July 3rd, 2006. They confirm part of the story is true. Buchanan was stopped at the border. A Border Patrol agent did find a video camera and cassettes in the back of Buchanan's van. The officer played one of the tapes, which showed very graphically Buchanan performing sex acts on the boy who was with him. Ballard was one of two HSI agents called to the scene to further investigate. When I worked in radio, Paul Harvey's news aired during my shift. He often included an in-depth feature, which concluded with a twist, beginning with the words, and now the rest of the story. I'll begin the next section of this report, and now the rest of the story. Or, in the movie's case, now the actual rest of the story. The five-year-old boy was not kidnapped. He had been groomed probably several years earlier. Big difference. 
He was a U.S. citizen living near San Bernardino, where he was befriended by Buchanan. His name is Jose M., not Pedro, as Glenn Beck calls him. The records show his last name, but I'll leave that out. He'd been living with his grandmother, who either consented to or was oblivious to his being sexually assaulted, perhaps for years. The premise of Ballard's story falls apart at the outset. Ballard's movie altered the facts so they would conform to OUR's mission statement. OUR's mission is not to, and never has been, to rescue groomed sex abuse victims. About the border stop, Ballard's fiction is that the Customs and Border Protection agent told me, look, I don't know why I put him in secondary. There was no reason. There was nothing obvious. Ballard infers Providence played a hand in saving the boy. The fact is, Buchanan was sent there because he had no ID for the boy. That's in police reports. Another Ballard fiction, I'm the first guy there. He was so scared that he was going back into the evil grasps of this man, Earl Buchanan. The fact is, a customs agent, not Ballard, was the first to take the boy from the van to a room at secondary. There was no report of the boy being afraid of Buchanan. Then there's Ballard's false statement to Trump. Buchanan was compelled to take his chances at the Calexico port of entry, which is armed with high-tech monitoring equipment and well-trained officers who look into the eyes of every person seeking entry. The truth is, Buchanan was not trying to smuggle the boy into the United States. He did not first try going around the wall. He did not hide the boy in his van. Fact is, Buchanan was not caught with high-tech equipment or a border agent looking him in the eye. He was caught because he forgot the boy's ID, which he left back in San Bernardino. It was not the first time Buchanan had taken the boy to Mexico and back. Those are facts laid out in police reports and court documents. Then there's the sister. It is true the boy had an older sister. Her name is Yanelli. She was 14 at the time, not Rocio, 11. She was never kidnapped. There's no record of her even being one of Buchanan's sex abuse victims. On the day Buchanan was arrested, she was with her grandmother at their home near San Bernardino, not a sex slave in Colombia. Other than Ballard's word, there is no corroboration for his story that Yanelli gave her brother a necklace. Yanelli M.'s role is well documented in police reports and court records. Much of the investigation shifted from federal homeland security to state law enforcement in San Bernardino, where there was already an open case on Buchanan. It was a botched case up until then. Bottom line, no Rambo-like extraction or anything close ever happened. Buchanan's arrest was widely covered by the California press and a national wire service. An example, this Los Angeles Times story. A man suspected of molesting children of his low-income tenants came to the attention of authorities years before he was arrested on child pornography charges last week, officials and neighbors said Wednesday. 
After finding incriminating evidence in Buchanan's van at the Calexico border crossing, agents obtained a warrant and the very next day searched Buchanan's property 160 miles to the north on the outskirts of San Bernardino, east of Los Angeles. All the while, Buchanan sat in jail in El Centro. Law officers searched this construction company compound, the site of Buchanan's construction business. It was packed with equipment at the time. A warehouse on the property had a bedroom and an adjoining children's playroom stocked with video games and children's movies. The room was wired for video recording. Investigators soon determined it was the site where Buchanan had molested between 8 and 11 children, ages 2 to 15. The search netted more news coverage. Trips to Disneyland, movies, gifts of dirt bikes, clothes and video games, everything the children could want, plus a place to stay for their impoverished parents. Investigators say these were the tools a landlord used to win the trust of parents and lure their children to his residence. But was it a search or a raid? Both Glenn Beck and Tim Ballard mischaracterized the search as a raid, even falsely claiming that's where Buchanan was arrested. Tim first met Pedro on video evidence, and then again in real life on the day when his team raided the residence of the California man who stole him. Pedro noticed Tim in the midst of the raid as the trafficker lay on his face at gunpoint. The six-year-old boy ran to Tim, put his arms around him, and simply said, I don't belong here. Besides Beck's false account, OUR published its own erroneous version. The article ran with this photo from the movie. The article said, Ballard had been toiling over a case of a wealthy contractor who was suspected to have kidnapped children from Mexico and smuggled them to the United States. That's not true. Ballard was not involved with the case prior to the arrest. He gets a Pinocchio. This was one of the toughest cases Tim had ever worked. Well, it was not Ballard's case, and it was not tough. Buchanan was caught with smoking gun evidence at the border. Another Pinocchio. A primary lead in the case was a little boy who had been smuggled out of Mexico by the pedophile at age five. You already know the boy was never smuggled out of Mexico. OUR's article goes on. Based on evidence from video footage, Tim believed the boy was enslaved in this house with several other children. The boy and other victims were not enslaved, not held by force at the house. On July 4th, Tim and a team of other operatives raided the compound. Again, false. It was a search. The operation rescued 11 children who were transported from the home to a safe location where Tim recognized the little boy he knew from the evidence tapes. Uh, that's also a lie. Buchanan was not arrested during any raid on his home near San Bernardino, certainly not at gunpoint. He was arrested the day prior at the border after incriminating evidence was found. No victims were enslaved there, but many were groomed, lured there, and sexually abused there. No victims were found during the search. 
there was no dramatic rescue with a jump team knocking down doors and freeing sex slaves. Buchanan pled guilty in the federal case involving Jose. He was later convicted by a jury in state court for abusing several more. He served the prison terms concurrently and was released from prison late last year. Now 78, he's on the sex offender list. Paul Hutchinson was an early investor in the film. He helped fund writing the script. He was on several OUR jumps and is portrayed in the film by Eduardo Verastegui, and he was in Colombia for part of the film production. Hutchinson says the boy giving Ballard dog tags and asking him to find his sister, that was theatrical liberty from the writers. The movie has five or six rescues brought together. Some, Tim, did not do. Other operatives did them, but they were put into one that is Tim's character. There was a rescue attempt in Haiti that involved going into the jungle there, not Colombia. As Hutchinson says, there was an attempted jungle rescue in Haiti, not Colombia. It involved a search for the missing three-year-old Gardy Marty who went missing from that church service. Ballard and his group posed as doctors on a medical mission similar to what the movie portrays. Uh, we were in one of the most dangerous regions in the world for trafficking. We were undercover uh, pretending to be doctors doing a, uh, a medical clinic. That was the only way we could get into this particular region to find the kids who were being trafficked. Here's a comparison between movie fiction and reality. The one took place in Colombia, the actual one in Haiti. Both involve purported child sex slave abductions. The fictional character is 11-year-old Rocio. Three-year-old Gardy Marty was a real person. Both were jungle rescue attempts. In both cases, they posed as doctors and a medical team. The rescue succeeds in the movie version in a real fairy tale ending. In reality, the rescue was a complete failure. Michael Harvey, who is still in government service, was Ballard's partner that day at the border. Seen here with Ballard more recently. Harvey knows there's a movie and could verify part or all of Ballard's story. He declined my request for an interview. Here's another fact about the case that could have made a good episode for the newspaper feature or television series, Ripley's Believe It or Not. So, believe it or not, the assistant U.S. attorney who prosecuted Earl Buchanan and knows Ballard is lying about the case is now an OUR employee. Alessandra Serrano, as you can tell from court documents, pursued criminal charges against Earl Buchanan. She was hired by OUR as an attorney and is also defending Tim Ballard against possible criminal charges. Serrano knows Buchanan groomed the five-year-old boy and did not kidnap him from Mexico or Honduras. She knows the boy was a U.S. citizen, not a foreign national that the boy's sister is Yanelli, 14, not Rocio, 11, who was never kidnapped, but was living with her grandmother and her brother. 
that there was no raid on Buchanan's compound. And she knows Ballard never went into a jungle and rescued anyone from a Colombian rebel leader, child sex abuser. Serrano was just one of Tim Ballard's San Diego connections that he had before founding OUR. His two criminal defense attorneys, James Lendris and Serrano, and Batman, Steve Cass, were all connected via the U.S. Attorney's Office in San Diego. All three of them would know the Sound of Freedom storyline is fiction. Uh, the little boy, this three-year-old little boy, who I remember when I directed The Passion, I went to the USCCB uh, to get support for the film. And um, those men couldn't get away from me fast enough. And all but a few of them turned their back on me. And it was, it was pretty telling about who they were. A pretty insipid bunch. And uh, it doesn't look like anything's changed. Geez, I remember back in the 70s, uh, old priests, good priests, who were uh, bullied and persecuted by their bishops. There was a rash of it back then also, and it was because they, you know, they wanted to maintain what it was that they were ordained to do. They didn't want to go along with the, the new liturgy and the reforms of Vatican II, and uh, so that they were uh, really heavily leaned on. It was never abrogated. The old mass never, it still hasn't been. You can't. It's protected by quo primum. Um, but they were bullied and, and badgered and put in insane asylums. And, you know, it, it was pretty sad to watch. And uh, this kind of thing is now happening again. So, and how are we supposed to know the good guys from the bad guys? Well, we were given a standard by which to judge them, you know, by their fruits. You'll know them by their fruits. Anybody seen any good fruit lately? Yeah. It's tough. And look, I'm a pretty sinful guy. I mean, I'm, I'm as venal as the next guy. But I know the difference between a shepherd and a hireling. And I think that the vast majority of these bishops are just a bunch of hirelings. You know. And my question is, you know, like, who's hiring them? I don't think it's Jesus. I, is it Francis? Who's hiring Francis? Is it, is it Pachamama? I mean, I think you need to look at the whole institution. And, uh, you know, I'll quote uh, Archbishop Vigano again in saying that uh, he believes that there was a parallel counterfeit church set up to eclipse the real one. Mel Gibson. A very, very interesting person so far. So we, we know that he's working on a four-part documentary exposing Hollywood and exposing the, the child trafficking going on. By the way, he's putting his life at risk. We already know what happens to people that try to expose the truth, especially him. And in 1998, right, he, in this video, is talking about a being, a person that he spoke to. Some type of producer. But if, if you hear the way he's explaining this, he has definitely encountered something much bigger than life. Something biblical. Something anti-Christ. Evil-like. 
And it seems that after this film in 1998, he began to, Mel Gibson began to fall. He began to, all type of controversy started to happen. He started, listen, when you speak out against these things, usually good things did not do not come your way. When you speak out and let people know the secrets behind this demonic type of industry, which is Hollywood overall, entertainment. Hollywood, this guy has done The Passion of Christ, Apocalypto, Lethal Weapon. He's a legend within himself. But once again, me finding out about the four-part documentary, about him trying to speak up and trying to do the right thing, because he's been in those circles, he's been there himself. This clip that we're about to that I'm about to show is crazy. Just listen to what he has to say. Now, this is part of a 25-minute interview. Uh, from back in 1998, you guys could check it out and really describes what Hollywood really is and what Hollywood has become, right? This satanic ritual type of way of living where evil wins. And once again, Mel Mel Gibson today, I, I personally, I, I really, you know, when people start to crack the code and start to take those steps into Christ, into the calling and I know he's a devout, uh, somebody said he's a devout Catholic in one of my last videos. But this guy has been exposing this for a while. And you could tell the way someone's life is headed that it has affected them and the secrets that they spill. And now he's working on a four-part documentary series about the child trafficking going on in the United States of America and Ukraine and all these different things. I mean, these are deep, dark secrets that people are trying to protect He's about to expose a $34 billion business, a $34 billion a year business. That's more than the airlines of today. I'm not sure. I think American Airlines, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, they make over $22 billion a year. I mean, ladies and gentlemen, protect this man that clearly has seen one of the most evil things you can. People like this that have gone through hell, people like this that have gone through it all, depression, controversy, Crazy comments, cancellation, all of the things. Like, there's a reason why these people exist and have gone through trials and tribulations because they know they've seen it with their own very eyes. They've seen it with their own very eyes. They've experienced it. And God uses these people in mysterious ways. If you look at some of the best people on this planet, they have gone through it all. They have gone through every controversy, every cancellation, cancellation possible. By people, the way that people think about them is usually extremely bad. But those are the same people that bounce back and they have seen it all, done it all. This guy right here encountered something crazy. And now he's taking steps in 2023 to expose it all. God protect this man, man, because we don't know. We don't know what could happen to somebody like Mel Gibson. We don't know, man. He's been low key. I think he was seen at a UFC event saluting Donald Trump. Donald Trump also reposted something about him on True Socials. So you can tell the correlation of where some of these controversial people are trying to take America and trying to expose these elites, these this establishment that exists. You guys let me know exactly what you think about Mel Gibson and the story. This is crazy. Um, but this is what Hollywood has become and this is what Hollywood has always been, in my opinion. This evil satanic stuff that happens and must be exposed, especially with, when it comes to children, man. I'll see you guys on the next one, man. Follow me on Rumble at Lou Valentino.
It is an honor to be here. Um, as a young man uh, raised and, and, and brought up in the public school system, I pledge my allegiance to that flag every single day. And the honor, maybe one of the greatest honors of my life today is to be here uh, and leverage the work that, that I've done as testimony that may in some way benefit this nation that I love. I'd like to start by saying thank you to Chairman Corker for your leadership in this endeavor and to Senator Cardin. Uh, your leadership has been uh, extraordinary. And I'd like to also say thank you to the rest of the committee that has supported this effort. This is a bipartisan effort and in a country that is riddled with bipartisan separation on so many things. Slavery seems to come up as one of these issues that we can all agree upon. And I applaud you for your agreement. And I believe in you and your leadership and your ability to take us out of it. I'm here today to defend the right to pursue happiness. It's a simple notion, the right to pursue happiness. It's bestowed upon all of us by our constitution. Every citizen of this country has the right to pursue it. And I believe that it, it, it is incumbent upon us as citizens of this nation, as Americans, to bestow that right upon others, upon each other, and upon the rest of the world. But the right to pursue happiness for so many is stripped away. It's raped. It's abused. It's taken by force, fraud, or coercion. It is sold for the momentary happiness of another. And this is about the time uh, when I start talking about politics that the internet trolls tell me to stick to my day job. Uh, so I'd like to talk about my day job. My day job is as the chairman and the co-founder of Thorn. We build software to fight human trafficking and the sexual exploitation of children. And that's our core mission. My other day job is that of the father of two, a two-month-old and a two-year-old. And as part of that job that I take very seriously, I believe that it is my effort to defend their right to pursue happiness and to ensure a society and government that defends it as well. As part of my anti-trafficking work, I've met victims in Russia. I've met victims in India. I've met victims that have been trafficked from Mexico, victims in New York and New Jersey and all across our country. I've been on FBI raids where I've seen things that no person should ever see. I've seen video content of a child that's the same age as mine being raped by an American man that was a sex tourist in Cambodia. And this child was so conditioned by her environment that she thought she was engaging in play. I've been on the other end of a phone call from my team asking for my help because we had received a call from the Department of Homeland Security telling us that a seven-year-old girl was being sexually abused and that content was being spread around the dark web and she had been being abused and they'd watched her for three years and they could not find the perpetrator, asking us for help. 
we were the last line of defense. An actor and his foundation were the potential last line of defense. That's my day job, and I'm sticking to it. I'd like to tell you a story about a 15-year-old girl in Oakland. We'll call her Amy. Amy met a man online, uh, started talking to him. A short while later, they met in person. Within hours, Amy was abused, raped, and forced into trafficking. She was sold for sex. And this isn't an isolated incident. There's not much that's unusual about it. The only unusual thing is that Amy was found and returned to her family within three days using the software that we created, a tool called Spotlight. And in an effort to protect its capacity over time, I won't give much detail about what it does, but it's a tool that can be used by law enforcement to prioritize their caseload. It's a neural net. It gets smarter over time. It gets better and it gets more efficient as people use it. And it's working. In six months, with 25% of our users reporting, we've identified over 6,000 trafficking victims, 2,000 of which are minors. This tool is in the hands of 4,000 law enforcement officials and 900 agencies. And we're reducing the investigation time by 60%. This tool is effective, it's efficient, it's nimble, it's better, it's smarter. Now, there's often a misconception about technology that in some way it is the generator of some evil, that it's creating job displacement, and that it enables violence and malice acts. But as an entrepreneur and as a venture capitalist in the technology field, I see technology as simply a tool, a tool without will. The will is the user of that technology, and I think it's an important distinction. An airplane is a tool. It's a piece of technology, and under the right hands, it's used for mass global transit, and under the wrong hands, it can be flown into buildings. Technology can be used to enable slavery, but it can also be used to disable slavery, and that's what we're doing. I alluded to a phone call that we got from the Department of Homeland Security about this girl that was being trafficked on the dark web. Now, it's interesting to note that the dark web was created in the mid-90s. It was a tool that was created by the Naval Research Lab called TOR, a tool with absolute purpose and positive intention for sharing intelligence communications anonymously. It's also been used to help people who are, are, are being disenfranchised by their government within political dissent in, in oppressive regimes. But on the other side, it's used for trafficking, for drug trafficking, for weapons trafficking, and for human trafficking. And it's also the warehouse for some of the most offensive child abuse images in the world. Now, when the Department of Homeland Security called us and asked for our help and asked if we had a tool, I had to say no. And it devastated me. It haunted me. Because for the next three months, I had to go to sleep every night and think about that little girl that was still being abused. And the fact that if I built the right thing, we could save her. So that's what we did. And now, if I got that phone call from Greg, wherever you're at, <laughs> the answer would be yes. We've taken these investigation times of dark web material from three years down to what we believe can be three weeks.
The tool is called Solus. Once again, I won't go into too much detail about the tool, but it's being used by 40 agencies across the world today in beta, and we believe that it's going to yield extraordinary results. And just like Spotlight, it gets smarter and more efficient and more cost-effective over time. So where do we go from here? What do we need? Obviously, we need money. We need financing in order to build these tools. Technology is expensive to build, but the beauty of technology is once you build the warehouse, it gets more efficient and, and more cost-effective over time. I might be able to present to you a government initiative where next year I come back and ask for less. And to me, that's, that's like, it seems extraordinary. The technology we're building is efficient, it works, it's nimble because traffickers change their modus operandi and we can change ours as well, just as efficiently, if not more efficiently as they can. It's enduring and it only gets smarter with time. We also are collecting data, we have KPIs. We actually understand that if we're delivering value, we increase our efforts in that area. If we're not delivering value, we shut it down. And it's a quantifiable solution. One of my mentors told me, don't go after this issue if you can't come up with a quantifiable solution. We can quantify it and we can make the work that we're doing and the initiatives that you put forth accountable. My second recommendation is to continue to foster these private-public partnerships. A spotlight was only enabled by the McCain Institution uh, and the full support of Cindy McCain and a man that I find to be not only a war hero, but a hero to this issue, John McCain. It wasn't just created by them. There was extraordinary support from the private sector. Uh, company Digital Reasoning out of Tennessee stepped up to the plate. They offered us effort. They offered us engineers. They offered us support and pro bono work. We've had the support of companies that oftentimes war with each other, from Google to Microsoft to AWS to Facebook. And some of our other technology initiatives include many, many other private companies. It's vital to our success. These private-public partnerships are the key. The third thing I'd like to highlight is the pipeline. You know, we sit at the intersection of discovery of these victims, but the pipeline in and the pipeline out are just as vital and just as important and addressing them are just as important. I'd, I'd like to highlight one thing in particular, that being the foster care system. There are 500,000 kids in foster care today. I, I was astonished to find out that 70% of the inmates in the prison across this country have touched the foster care system and 80% of the people on death row were at some point in time exposed to the foster care system. 50% of these kids will not graduate high school and 95% of them will not get a college degree. But the most staggering statistic that I found was that foster care children are four times more likely to be exposed to sexual abuse. That's a breeding ground for trafficking. I promise you that's a breeding ground for trafficking. But the reason I looked at foster care is that it's a microcosm. It's, it's a sample set that we have pretty extraordinary data around to date, even though we can't seem to fix it. It's a microcosm for what happens when displacement happens abroad as the unintended consequences of our actions or inactions in the rest of the world. When people are left out, when they're neglected, when they're not supported, and when they're not given the love that they need, to grow, it becomes an incubator 
for trafficking. And this refugee crisis, if, if, you, if we want to be serious about ending slavery, we cannot ignore it and we cannot ignore our support for this issue in that space because otherwise we're going to deal with it for years to come. The outbound pipeline, there's just not enough beds. The bottom line is once, people, once someone is exposed to this level of abuse, it's a mental health issue. And there aren't enough beds, there's not enough support, and we have to have the resources on the other side. Otherwise, the recidivism, the recidivism rates are through the roof. It's, it, it's astonishing because when Maslow's hierarchy and needs are not being met, people resort to survival. And if this is their means of survival and the only source of love that they have in their life, that's what they go for. So we have to address the pipeline out and we have to create support systems on the other end. It's not an entitlement. It's a demand to end slavery. My fourth and final recommendation is the bifurcation of sex trafficking and labor trafficking. They're both aberrations. They're both awful. They're both slavery. And they're both punitive, in fact. But the solution sets are highly differentiated. When you look at sex trafficking, a victim is most often present at the incident of commerce. And, and this, this provides an opportunity for, for drastic intervention. Whereas in labor trafficking, the victims are being hidden behind the manufacturers and the merchandisers. And it requires an entirely different set of legislation and proactivity and enforcement in order to shut it down. Now, there's a lot of rhetoric that's going on in the world right now about job creation in the United States. Well, if we want to create jobs in the United States, I would ask you to consider eliminating slavery from the pipelines of corporations. Because a lot of that slavery is happening abroad. And if we ask those corporations under extreme pressure that if you don't change it, you are going to be penalized. And if you don't clean up that pipeline, it's going to mean trouble. And, and they're, they're forced with two decisions. They can either clean up the pipeline abroad or they can move the jobs to the United States of America where they can be regulated and supported. The, bringing jobs to America can be the consequence of doing the right thing or it can be the consequence of doing the wrong thing. But that choice is up to you. Now, it's not lost on me that all of this disruption in our marketplaces is going to have economic backlash. Like, that is not lost on me at all. But I ask you, do you believe that Abraham Lincoln had to consider the economic backlash of shutting down the cotton fields in the South when he shut down slavery? Because I'm sure that weighed on his mind. You know, happiness can be given to no man. It must be earned. It must be earned through, through generosity and through purpose. But the right to pursue it, the right to pursue it is every man's right. And I beg of you that if you give people the right to pursue it, what you may find in return is happiness for yourself. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank All right. So, you know, that, that clip of Ashton Kutcher, I know it, it kind of seemed to come from left field. Obviously, it's connected, though, like I said, um, to all this talk of sex trafficking of minors. Um, but frankly, I don't I'm not I'm not calling Ashton Kutcher 
bogus. You know, I think he's pretty based. I might have mentioned how he perhaps was using inflated numbers, probably not intentionally, um, but it seems to me that his heart most certainly is in the right place, and he seems like a decent person. Um, Far from perfect. I mean, I know he's had allegations of um, infidelity, you know, adultery, all that stuff. Surprise, surprise. Uh, But overall, he seems like a decent guy, right? Now, then you have Mel Gibson, who shares a passion for protecting children, but most certainly is a bit more of a sordid individual, a bit more questionable, perhaps further along the bogus side of things. But then again, you know, he might be right about a lot of stuff and perhaps we should take him seriously. And, and by no means do do I believe that people, you know, just because they have flaws or they've made mistakes doesn't mean they should be ignored or disregarded entirely. Um, but, you know, he doesn't do himself a whole lot of service by, by, frankly, looking like a loon, you know, flying off the handle. You know, clearly Mel Gibson is a vengeful, kind of wrathful individual. He's got issues. But, you know, it doesn't mean he's lying. Now this third guy, the the guy that nobody's ever heard of till till this movie, right? The Sound of Freedom, um, Tim Bollard, Billard, something like that. You know, I did a little digging into his story, right? And I hate to say it, but it sort of seems as though he might be full of shit. That he might have made some stuff up along the way. That he might have fabricated you know fiction but sold it as fact you know and frankly I don't care how how noble your your mission is if you are a bald-faced liar that that puts you in the in the bogus category for me you know what separates his sort of I don't know mo from you know, Mel or Ashton is I don't see any sign of Mel Gibson or Ashton Kutcher being bald faced liars. You know, it seems as though perhaps the reason they get caught in these scandals is because they don't lie terribly well or or have a have an aversion to lying. You know, Mel Ga- Mel Gibson actually refers to the fact that he used to be a great liar. As a, as a kid, you know, he, he could lie about anything. He could convince people of things that weren't true. And partly how that's what made him a great actor. But it seems to me that the years of controversy and, you know, years in the spotlight followed by sort of a decade of seclusion, you know, I think he might just not give a shit anymore. I think he might just Say, fuck it. I'm going to say it like I see it. Again, you know, I don't think he's a role model. But he might be worth listening to. You know, do I take him seriously when he says that 
you know, maybe Christopher Walken is the Antichrist? I want to say no. But you never know. I mean, I, I'm i not going to claim to be able to disprove that. You know, of all people, I don't think I would have picked Christopher Walken, but that's why it's almost a compelling story. It's sort of the person you would least expect. But again, you know, maybe Mel's just batshit crazy and always was. I will not make a definitive statement on whether or not he is based or bogus. To me, he's still a big question mark. But if I had to put money on it, I'd say this Tim fella is bogus. And I think Ashton Kutcher's pretty based. But I leave that opinion up to you as far as how you want to feel about it. Again, not trying to elevate or, you know, celebrity worship. If anything, this is the opposite. I I think this is a good sort of way of saying we should never, never have false idols, right? Celebrity status, you know, sort of people in our society tend to worship celebrities as idols, right? We have the paparazzi, we've got TMZ, we've got, you know, People Magazine. Fuck, you know, like, why do we even give a shit about these people? Except that we idolize them. And what happens when we make idols out of mortal men and women, so often they end up with inflated egos and a sense of, you know, I can do anything I want and get away with it. Which is why, to me, it would make perfect sense for Hollywood to become a cesspool of corruption and moral depravity. You know, that it might even be the epicenter of moral decay. You know, because of this hero worship, this, this idealization, or idolization, I should say. But that's about all I can I can say on the matter. As I said, I'm no expert. You know, all I'm trying to do is use my best judgment, my best discernment to try to make sense of this wild and crazy world we're living in. The clown world, some people have started calling it. But I will leave you with that. Thanks for listening to the easy Easy Podcast. And if you would like to donate, please go to easypeasy.ittybitty.tips. I'll talk to you soon.